So this is a one-of-a-kind piece. There's no other one like this particular one in the world. And you can see the tracks go this way. And um, it's really cool because it, it records much more accurately than... Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Listeners out there in podcast radio land, this is Square Waves FM, episode number 32. Extremely happy to have you aboard with us. Um, we, I have a co-host with me today. Please introduce yourself, co-host. Hi, I'm the co-host. <laughs> you probably, oh, I, I see I've been promoted from special guest to co-host. I'm Just Bianca. for today. Ooh, for today. Hi, Bianca. Thanks for joining us, co-host. And we have a special new guest today. Please introduce yourself, sir. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Tomel, uh, Tomel Gabel, in case you were wondering how the last name is pronounced. Uh, I'm from Israel, which is weird, and uh, <laughs> I'm here to talk about uh, stuff and things. Ooh, stuff and things. It's what we do best. Tomer, Tomer, mashlomech. It's almost right, it's mashlomcha, shlomech is for uh, females. Oh, mashlomcha, it's been too long. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm good, I'm good. How are you guys? Tov meod. Uh, that's that's about the extent of my Hebrew now. It's been like twenty years. Oh yeah, that's that's still pretty impressive, actually. Well, it's a, it's, uh, it's a very esoteric Hebrew. language, so anyone who knows anything in it is, is basically has got a leg, leg up on everyone else in the world, pretty much. Oh, I, <laughs> that's very nice to say. Uh, cool, great to have you aboard, Tamara. So thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Um, Happy to be here. That's great. I uh, really enjoyed and appreciated your letter uh, a few weeks ago about the demo scene. We're definitely going to have to pick your brain on that topic, uh, if not today. Yeah, then. I mean, I'm, I'm far from an authority on it, but I'm, you know, I'm an enthusiast, so I'm always willing to talk about it. Oh, that's great. Did you participate personally? Oh, yeah. I've been, uh, I've been active in the Israeli demo scene as a programmer from back when it was still active, basically 95 through 98. Hmm. Um, so I was, I was actually pretty young at the time, and uh, I was kind of a stupid kid. And just recently, I've uh, started a project to record and uh, upload to YouTube uh, basically old Israeli demo scene productions. Uh, oh, that's so great. obviously, I started with uh, the, the sort of demos that my group and I put together. And uh, yeah, we sucked badly <laughs> way back then, but it was just so much fun, so we didn't care. Oh, that's fantastic. And now that YouTube can support 60 frames per second, I've found that uh, demo scene stuff looks a lot better all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And the modern-day dem demos, I mean, the kind of quality that you can get off of YouTube, I, it, it's shit compared to, say, Blu-ray or, you know, pretty much any any kind of serious video standard. But or running it natively. Fantastic. Yeah, but it is fantastic. Uh, I mean, the fact that, you, you know, you can pretty much pick a machine anywhere and just run a, you know, video of a demo that's actually pretty well recorded and rendered, that's that's amazing. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, I bought, what was it called? There was a, uh, I think it was Trickster, Jim Leonard, who yeah, uh, sold candy. a series of uh, DVDs. Yeah, Mind Candy. Mind uh, Candy, that's right. I bought the first one, and just seeing it on a regular standard definition television in like 24 frames per second or so, it looked gross. And I feel bad yeah. because I know he did all this extra post-production editing work to get it to look decent on television at all, but it did not do it justice, that, that format. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's true enough. I mean, the first one is uh, well, there's there's a couple issues with it. First off, is the DVD format. It's just you know, it, it, it used to be amazing back in the day, but it is actually technically really really basically crap. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, with that in mind, also the the original uh, Mind Candy, the first DVD, covered a period of about ten years from the Israeli demo scene, right? Uh, from the PC demo scene, I mean, yeah. ten to fifteen years, and uh, honestly, a lot of the more modern demos uh, were from what I consider to be the most boring period of PC demos, which is basically nineteen ninety nine ish. You know, for a few years, it, it took a while for the demo scene to kind of come to grips with the 3D hardware acceleration and, you know, the fact that hardware had become so fast that technical challenges weren't as trivial to come up with. Right. Uh, um, so a lot of the demos on that DVD, I, well, it, it, it's two DVDs, actually. You know, one is for kind of old school productions and the other is for, uh, for that time, more modern demos. And uh, I find a lot of them actually pretty boring. But then the second Mind Candy is, uh, is uh, about the Amiga demo scene, which is, you know, it, it both had the pick of the litter uh, from the older Amiga demos, but also the more modern ones. And it's actually really, really good. And then the third Mind Candy is on Blu-ray, which uh, is, you know, full high definition, really, really ridiculously high bit rates. You know, certain scenes can get to 20, 30 megabits per second easily, which is... Uh, just uh, mind-boggling, and then it's in 60 frames per second, you know, full progressive scans. It looks amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it has some just amazing demos on it as well. So it's really highly recommended. I think there's there's probably a, a few hundred more copies out there that they're sort of uh, you know keeping for people who are interested. So if anyone is, just uh, you know, we can probably put a link. In the show notes for that. Um, oh yeah, mine can be absolutely. Highly recommended. Uh, the Blu-rays are just amazing. And I love to. Th- I'm glad you mentioned the bit rates of the video as well. I've I've always found this a really fascinating thing. Where, like for example, I uh, this past week I uploaded a YouTube video where I took one of the songs that I wrote. It was basically with a general MIDI sort of a format, and I uh, rendered it to MP3, and then I. Uh, played it with Winamp using their Milk Drop uh, visualization thing, which does all this really pretty visualization uh, oscilloscope kind of stuff. And then I uploaded it. So the original song was something like, I don't know, 12 kilobytes. And the YouTube video I uploaded was 1.9 gigabytes. Oh, crap. (laughs) Just because it was 1080p and 60 frames per second. But I just love that. I find that fascinating to think that something, some technology that might be 20 years old it just balloons in size today and is easier to consume in that humongous size than it would have been to render it uh, locally. Yeah. Wow, Milk Drop. I haven't heard that name in probably 15 years, 10 years. I, I've been uploading a bunch of my mod music and other music to YouTube, usually using visualizations, a little like executable EXE and COM programs that I find from wherever, like for DOS. I'm starting to run low on those, and so I was thinking, what else could I show visually, and then I remembered, oh, Winamp came with this really cool one, so I downloaded Winamp from oldversion.com. I'll put that in the show notes, too. I love that website so much. Um, and they had lots of different versions of uh, Winamp, and that's a, that's a program that stayed good until the very, very end 
supposedly it's going to be uh, re-released by a new owner sometime soon. But the old version, it's still to this day a fantastic uh, music player with a lot of formats and also a really good like library manager with metadata. Yeah, it's, and everything. it's the two X series that's any good, right? I mean, the the one on five, if I remember correctly, was just really really crappy. Oh no, that's what I was using. I think it's great. Oh yeah, it has better library it. management than ever, and it has new skins which are larger, so it's better for higher resolution screens. Well, there is that. I hadn't used it in years, but I remember that the version five was being incredibly bloated and uh, just full of useless features and you know just way slower. Um, as an aside, though, I seem to remember there used to be a uh, a plugin for Win for Winamp uh, that had a different kind of mod playing engine, you know, for uh, tracker files. Oh yes, it was it was just way 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 higher quality than the built-in um, mod rendering that it had. So yeah, you might the built-in. That. Uh, that's a good advice. The yeah, the built-in one was quite inaccurate, so sometimes yeah. it would play effects wrong or it would play durations incorrectly. So usually what I would do is just render my uh, my my uh, mod songs to WAV or MP3 or something and just play those. Well, if you're looking for a, a, a high quality and pretty accurate uh, mod player for uh, for Windows, that's actually really, really uh, kind of lightweight. It's just a practically bare bones. It's sort of like Winamp 2 used to be back in the day, except it's it's more uh, focused on tracker music. Mm -hmm. uh, give XM Play a try by uh, Ian Luck. It's uh, uh, un, un four is in the digit four scene for, uh, dot com, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's my favorite Windows mod there. I've been I've been mostly using Macs for my sort of day job in the last few years, so I haven't been keeping up with the what's out there on Windows, but it used to be my favorite music player on Windows for years. Oh yeah, XM Play is good. I just found it didn't play as many formats as other players. Uh, it's got a, it's got like a million plugins. Oh, it's, I didn't realize. Pretty much everything under the sun. It's really, really good. Oh, good advice. While we're talking about this techie stuff, I wanted to uh, mention, I, I think I've mentioned this podcast already, they're up to their seventh or eighth episode or something now, called Lost Treasures of Gaming. Um... Oh, I didn't write down the names of the, the guys. One of the guys who uh, runs it is a guy named Sid Bolton, who has the Computing History Museum. Oh, yes. In uh, Brentford. Oh, yes. Awesome place. If you're ever in Ontario, southern Ontario, it's definitely some place you should visit if you love video games. It's just mind-boggling to be walk through this place. Ceiling, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. Shelves of games in pristine condition. Yeah, he's the, he has the biggest collection consoles. in Canada. Yeah, endless oh. consoles and arcade cabinets. It was just mind blowing the first time we went there. And also all the computers he has. He had I don't know seventy or eighty classic computers: the ZX Spectrum and the yeah. Humber sixty four and the Amigas and all of these yeah. ones that I couldn't even hear of before. And they're all turned on, and he encourages everyone to play with them. Which oh, it's is uh, amazing. It's Sean Evans and Sid Bolton. Sean Evans, there. I've got that in front of me too. Thank you very much. So it's a terrific, uh, terrific podcast, <laughs> and they had a really, especially fascinating one um, in their last episode, which was about um, it was about uh, Dragon's Lair, but specifically the version of Dragon's Lair uh, that was ported to the Game Boy Color, which is the first color handheld. No, it's not the first color handheld. Yeah, I think the, uh, I think Game Gear. The Game Gear was first. I think. Uh, yes, Sega Game Gear came before the Game Boy one. 
Oh, did Lynx come before Game Gear? I think it did, and uh, the Turbo Graphics 16 was, I think, also. Oh, oh no, that was not a. No, there was uh, the Neo Neo Geo uh, Pocket. Ah, yes. That that came in around the same time, I think. But uh, my memory. Well, I'm I'm not that big of a of a console gamer, so I was never all that interested. Mm. But oh no, the the Neo Geo. Pocket, forget it. That that came out like ten years uh, after. Was that later? Because that was a very powerful machine, as I remember. So it must have come out later. So was that yeah. Turbo Graphics one was amazing. It played the same games as the base console, which is incredible on these little credit card things. But the Game Boy yeah. Color was hardly more powerful than the original Game Boy. Very uh, underpowered. It had actually, the exact same hardware, except it had this. Uh, um, it had this weird kind of extension to the graphics where you had you had different palettes that would sort of uh, subsume the original monochrome display, and you could tweak it a little bit. It's it's a really really weird. Sounds like the Super Game Boy that you would plug into your Super Nintendo, with its uh, bizarre color palette that would augment the uh, Game Boy games. Yeah, it let you replace the grayscales with the uh, colors. That was the one for Super Nintendo that let you play yes. your Game Boy games. Yeah, the on Super your Game Boy. Never even heard of that one. Oh but, yeah, that was uh, a really neat device. But the, this color Game Boy, anyway, very low-powered machine. I, it might have been like two megahertz or something like that. Um, um, I think even less than that. It was it was just a ridiculously underpowered machine. But I mean, it was it was what it was for the time. It was incredible for the time, it especially because I think it was backlit. But the Game Gear was far superior in terms of the uh, in terms of earlier technology. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, this podcast was about the uh, Dragon's Lair port to this uh, machine, and Dragon's Lair was a laser disc game that translates. I don't know. It's something like two gigabytes of data or so if you rip it at a pretty high quality. And this is on a tiny, very old, like, 1980s circa handheld device. So their cartridge size is actually 4 megabytes. And not only did this programmer succeed in, uh, in um, porting it to the device, he actually did it without cutting out any of the scenes, which was oh, oh. something that they had to do for other platforms. So this guy was just very creative and did an amazingly good job at porting it to this extremely limited machine. So they have a fascinating conversation about all the tricks that he did to make that possible. So I will gladly put a link to this podcast in our show notes. It was a terrific yeah, I'll listen. I'll definitely check it out. Looks uh, looks fantastic. And also, uh, and I've never been to Canada, but uh, I, I fully intend to at some point. And then if I happen to be... You mentioned that the museum is in... Uh, was it Ontario or Toronto? Yes, Ontario. Brantford, Ontario. Ontario. It's about an hour and a half out of Toronto or so. Okay, I'll I'll hopefully get to visit there. It was just phenomenal. We've been there twice now, actually. Once to visit the museum and once for a Halloween party. Yeah, it was just wall-to-wall people all there to play games. There was a small mm-hmm. admission fee just to uh, keep it under control, but wall-to-wall people, lots of food, lots of games, and pizza, and plenty of red jo- shirt jokes. Ugh. Oh, yeah, wife wore a, a, she wore a Star Trek uniform. We both wore Star Trek uniforms. <laughs> I had the yellow shirt, and she had the red shirt. But it and was, it was a bunch of, and a bunch of Trekkie scubs, scrubs, too. They didn't even know their uh, lore, because I was TNG. <laughs> they kept us, they kept mis- messing it up, mixing, uh, confusing it with the original series. What a bunch of friggin' scrubs. Right, for the original series, the people in the red shirts were the disposable security people, whereas in... Next generation, the red shirts were the the highest people in command. And like, if my wife and I are going to dress up as 
Star Trek people, there's no way I'm going to be senior <laughs> senior in the hierarchy. So she obviously had the higher command one, but everybody with, called her a disposable red shirt. Well, with TNG, if I remember correctly, it was uh, everyone from the rank of Lieutenant Commander Upper or something of the sort? Uh, no, it, you could you could be an ensign and be a red shirt. It meant that you were in the command, the, uh, command that uh, oh, area, yeah, like which staff. means that you were helmsman or anything that had to do with giving commands. Huh. Oh, okay. Well... well I'm, you know, I, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but I don't consider myself a Trekkie, so I'm, I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as, well, pretty much anyone who does define themselves as a techie. So, um, as an aside, uh, a, a couple anecdotes. First is, sorry to, to kind of uh, uh, come back to our earlier um, topic, but sure. uh, you mentioned the Game Boy Color, so uh, actually in the, in the last revision demo party in Germany uh, from April, uh, a demo that I just sent you a link to uh, off of chat called It Came From Planet Zylog uh, was produced for the Game Boy Color, and it's actually just, it's mind-bogglingly good considering how limited the platform is, so you should definitely check it out. It's beautiful. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. That's incredible. I wonder whether it works on an emulator. Uh, it should, I think. I mean, they played it on actual hardware for the for the demo competition because that's sort of what you do. Right. But uh, I'm pretty sure that the video um, that you can find from the link that I sent you on YouTube uh, is from an emulator. Uh, but regardless, I mean, it's just mind-bogglingly good. Just really, really beautiful. Even the music is, is pretty good. Oh, that's great. repetitive, but pretty good. I have always loved the sound chip on the Game Boy. I think the Game Boy Color is the same one. Yeah. I found yeah, it very charming. I love the sound chip, too. But growing uh, up, I was forced to turn it down because nobody else appreciated the quality of that little sound yeah. chip. Uh-huh. Well, everyone appreciates the, you know, the, the decent kind of uh, music that sounds a little bit like, you know, it's, it's a basic synthesizer, but it sounds sort of like any other music. So you have things like... Uh, the music from Super Mario Land, which is, uh, you know, sort of infamous. Um, well, infamous is not the word, but I mean, it's really, really famous for being really, really good. Mm-hmm. And it yes, is. it's really good, actually. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah. Also, um, while we're at it, let me um, share with you a, a website uh, from a, a person I consider to be sort of an online friend of mine, uh, Mike, uh, multimedia mic, as he's called. Uh, so the website is Cirrus Retro, C-I-R-R-U-S-Retro.com. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an online uh, music player for old consoles. So it emulates the sound chips of old consoles right on your browser. Wow. You music from these games. Ooh. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, and among other things, it's got a lot of Game, Boys, uh, game Boy games. Uh, on there, so you can, you know, get nostalgic to your heart's content. Whoopsie. That's nice awesome. Job. Oh, I didn't even need a plug-in. That's very yeah, impressive. Absolutely nothing. It's just JavaScript. It's this... Uh, oh, that's well, brilliant. Yeah, it's uh, it's really, really, really cool. Um, and wow. I'm, I'm happy to plug his work, because uh, <laughs> I don't know that... Shameless plugging. Know it. Uh, well, it's not shameless. Uh, it's, it's Well, it is a shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> just not, just not a plug for anything that I've done. So uh, yeah. for sure. Hey, anything having to do with video game music, I'm all for it. I have a gigantic, voluminous library myself of video game oh, music. Yeah. Listen to it all the time. Oh yeah, and your favorite, I think, is uh, Animal Crossing, right? 
Animal Crossing is way up there. If I had to pick a favorite, I might have to pick Star Control 2. Oh, yeah. Mod, um, mod music soundtrack. I, I absolutely... Uh, I mean, Star Control 2 is, in general, is, is sort of my all-time favorite computer game in every respect. Good um, man. I have huge praise for it. Mm. But actually, in terms of the music, um, I mean, it's, it's great, but it's not what I perceive to be a masterpiece. There are just examples of things that are... I, I mean, it's... It's very diverse, and there's a lot of it, and a yeah. lot of it is really, really good. But uh, as sort of a, you know, if you take all of the tracks and try to, to, you know, play them one by one, um, or just listen to them as though it were an album, you'd find that it actually gets on your nerves pretty quickly. So it's really good music, and it just doesn't sort of tie in into this uh, kind of thematic experience the way other sort of uh, top-tier game soundtracks do. Oh, sure. Mm. Diverse is the word for it. Is that What would you pick as your favorite game soundtrack? Uh, my favorite would probably be uh, the sort of the CD rendition, or rather the, the soundtrack that came out for the original uh, uh, 1992 Dune by Exos. It's oh, yeah. Dune Ice Opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually own one of these, and it, uh, it, it used to be pretty rare, but someone managed to find uh, a, a pretty substantial stock, so uh, at least for a while you could actually find it on eBay for sale. That's uh, quite a find. Yeah, yeah, I took the opportunity. It was costly. It must have must have ran me like a hundred-something bucks. Wow. It was totally worth it. It's one of the, it's one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. That's one of the soundtracks that Anatoly likes to post a lot, but he prefers the AdLib OPL2 version. Yeah, yeah, obviously. I mean, Anatoly is... Uh, he's an old schooler. <laughs> he's a great guy, but he, he tends to be sort of a, a purist in that respect. Sure. And I think... Yeah, I mean, I, I love... I think that the FM rendition for that soundtrack is just mind-bogglingly good. It really is. Uh, it... it Beats the Amiga version hands down, and that's you know that's not a trivial undertaking. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the CD, the actual sort of uh, you know studio album that that they made, uh, what was it, Stefan Peak and uh, yes, that's Aura, right. I think mm-hmm. uh, um, it's just literally one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. And there's other favorites, you know, quite a few of them, but that that would probably be my sort of off the you know off the cuff choice for best soundtrack ever. Well, that's a fine choice. How about you, Bianco? Do you have a favorite video game soundtrack? Ooh, this is a toss up. I have a few that I like, but I think it would really come down to uh, either Fahrenheit Katamari or uh, one of the Genesis games that I liked, which was World of Illusion with uh, Mickey and Donald. Oh yeah, we talked about that one yeah, last, last week, week was it? That had a lovely soundtrack. Oh, yeah, the Genesis had a, I thought the Genesis had a really grating sound, trick, sound chip, but who, the people who really knew how to compose for it made it do beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I need to uh, still need to catch up on last week's episode. I haven't had the time, but uh, I'll definitely uh, give a listen and then try to, to find a relevant soundtrack. Oh, sure. I, I believe the last song, we like to put a song at the end of every episode. I believe that was a... World, yes. of, World of Illusion? Castle of Illusion? What was it called? Uh, World of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Uh-huh. And I believe I actually picked the uh, first song that plays, which is the uh, song for the forest level. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, the, the opening. 
symphonic kind of a thing is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Okay. I'll, I'll look it up. I, I don't think I've ever heard that one. But then, uh, like I said, consoles were actually, up until pretty much the, you know, sort of like Anatolia and his uh, history of uh, computing in the Soviet Union. Mm. I think uh, the, the Israeli market was predominantly around PC gamers, and uh, or, or rather PCs in general. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in the early 80s, you had a lot of uh, Apple IIs and Commodore 64s in Israel and a few others, but uh, the PC took over really, really, really quickly. And uh, a lot of kind of common late 80s computers never uh, never gained any mind share. Like Macs were, were, you know, you had Macs in Israel, but they were pretty esoteric. And Amigas were even more rare uh, way back when. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and consoles, on the other hand, basically up until the PlayStation took over, you mostly had either uh, Taiwanese knockoffs of, of the Famicom, uh, like the, the original uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you had the occasional Sega console, like uh, either the Master System or the Genesis. But that's pretty much it. The, the console gaming really took off in Israel only with the original PlayStation. That's interesting. I'm sure that had something to do with, like, the publishers themselves trying to make it more available because uh, it was, would have been a black market. Hold on a moment. Oh, we missing a bird? Yeah. Oh, there she is. Go get her. <laughs> Every now and then, Bianca has to do some bird wrangling. Uh, <laughs> we have two budgies which fly very, very easily and well, and we have a green-cheeked conure, which uh, is a bird that kind of hovers a little bit, uh, but it mainly kind of walks. So whenever she gets spooked, she'll kind of go on the floor and walk behind something and hide from us. She'll waddle across the floor. It's She's pathetic. a waddler, so you got to find her as soon as you can before she hides somewhere good. Her favorite place is under the bed. Yes. <laughs> well, the, the vagaries of uh, animal husbandry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, won't, uh, I won't bore you with details of having to run through the house chasing the cats or the dog or, you know, having to uh, keep them from beating the crap out of one another. <laughs> Typically the cats, actually. I mean, the dog is really, really patient with everything, but the cats... We have two, and they just literally fight all the time. Cats are assholes. Cats are assholes. Yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, I thought I was saying it. I had cat for uh, all my life until very recently when I got birds. How many cats have you had? Six? Oh, let's see. There was the cat my mother had when I was born. Then there were the two cats that my parents uh, adopted when I was a couple of years old. Then there was the two cats that uh, I convinced my dad to let me adopt when I after my parents were divorced. And one of them I wound up taking with me when I moved here to Toronto and then eventually moved out. So this cat stayed with me for 19 years. Yeah, Crystal, R.I.B. She was a very good cat. That's impressive, even for a cat. Yeah, she had a good run. Yeah, great run. Great with people. Hated other cats. Yeah, yeah. she sure did. They do, they do that. Yep. So, in my case, I've, I've never actually had cats. I always considered myself a dog person. Mm. Uh, but then, when uh, when my wife and I moved together, uh, that was uh, you know a couple of years before we did, we uh, actually got married. Um, we adopted a dog, and she really wanted cats as well. And I said, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, I've never had any, so I don't know what they want or what to do with them. But <laughs> let's go for it. Mm -hmm. um, 
so we did. And uh, yeah, I sort of uh, nowadays consider myself both a, a cat and a dog person. And my primary uh, conclusions from having had raised cats for the last seven or eight years is that A, cats are indeed assholes. <laughs> and B, contrary to popular myth, cats are not smart. Rather, they're not any smarter than dogs. Oh, no? No, yeah, but they can uh, appear to be clever at times. They're coercive, at least. They're more, um, you know, they're less likely to do what you tell them to. So they have this veneer of, you know, sort of, they're basically snobs. <laughs> and, and whenever yeah. someone acts as a snob, you, you, you know, you have this sort of uh, basic assumption that they know something you don't. Uh, so that, that I perceive is why people think cats are smart, but they're actually really, really freaking stupid. <laughs> in some cases, Crystal was smart in some ways. She, yeah. when she wanted her water dish filled, what she would do is she would walk to the bathroom and stand on the edge of the tub and meow at you. <laughs> that was her sign that she wanted her water dish filled. Oh, and that was like two rooms away from her water dish even. Yeah, but she knew that. So she that's, knew where it came from. Yeah, but she knew that's where the water came from because she always saw us go in and get water from there for ourselves mm -hmm. because our bathroom happened have the best water. Your cats are good at getting themselves fed, I guess. If they're smart in any way, it's in that way. True, they learn how to mimic good. the sound of crying babies, which often get the attention of humans. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, cats are, uh, you know, both survivalists, and they they like to get their way. Um, yes. So, you know, they'll find the, the nice, coziest spot, or warmest spot, or coldest spot, depending on the weather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, if, if you ever want to find the, the most comfortable spot in your house, just let a cat loose mm -hmm. and just wait. Right. Go we'll find them sleeping somewhere, and that's the, the most comfortable spot in the house. It's also a good way to find the cleanest laundry in the house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Generally, yes. Yeah. For intelligent animals, birds are pretty good. Budgies are really intelligent. One of ours figured out how to open the cage. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Little buggers. Whoa. But they're not smart enough to talk, unfortunately, our budgies. Anyway. Yeah. So moving on from animals to, I guess you have a letter to read from Chris. Oh, yes. I do, as a matter of fact. Which Chris? This we, would we've be... We've had a number of Chris's. We have. We've had like a record number of Chris's, haven't we? Well, this is from the, the Chris of all Chris's, a.k.a. our absentee host who founded the podcast with me. Which oh, is awesome. wonderful to hear from him. So why don't I give this a read and then we can talk about it. Oh, please do. So, once again, he addresses us as SQFM or Squiffum. <laughs> he says, Dear listeners, how I miss your many voices and corrections to our many errors. Lately, friend of the podcast Ben and I have been talking about creating living worlds in games. That's a pretty high mark for any game, but I think that there are many games out there that feel alive. Wing Commander Privateer is one of those for me, and so is Planescape Torment, Ultima 7 The Black Gate, and even a little game called Subculture, if you can find it, play it. A friend of mine commented that even Pokemon Red and Blue feel like a living world crammed into a tiny cartridge. So here's my question for all you adventurers. What games make you feel like you're living in a tiny world, and what about them makes them feel real to you? Brian, feel free to make this an upcoming episode topic if you'd like. I definitely will. I'll be certain... Oh, I'll certainly be writing in more about this and hashing out the details with our friend Ben. Always your number one fan and absentee host, Chris. P.S. Trolls, thank you so much for all the kind wishes. I wish you real bad, man. And for some reason, still can't get the sound of you pissing like a racehorse on the air 
out of my head. Bear hugs and kisses, Chris. <laughs> yes, Charles is a uh, an expert consumer of uh, of fluids and also a good converter of fluids. Oh. So hi, Charles. Uh, TMI. TMI. And similarly, let's just say that this episode is brought to you, what is this? By Crosswind Pale Ale from Ontario. If you ever want to simulate the flavor of licking a tuba, I recommend this beer. <laughs> this is gross. Well, you have your brother-in-law and sister to thank for that. Thank you, brother-in-law and sister. I do appreciate the variety of beers that they bought me. Just my taste but. buds don't. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to, to send you a message right there. Yeah, right. They want me to sleep with the fishes or something or to taste the tubas. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, th uh, big thanks to Chris for sending in the letter. He asked a good question, which is what uh, games make us feel like we're immersed in a tiny little world. So I had the advantage, having read this initially, of putting together a short list, but I'd love to pr uh, probe you guys. My list, I have Animal Crossing, Quest for Glory, and The Longest Journey. Those are all games that uh, are fleshed out well enough that I kind of feel like uh, people inhabit them. It's not just full of people that are waiting for me to arrive to uh, for them to give me the one thing they have to say and then continue standing there forever. Those all feel to me like lived-in worlds where people have their own motivations and cares and would still be doing stuff if I weren't there. So, uh, Tomer, how about you? Do you have any uh, games that come to mind when you think of a living world? Uh, I do have a few. Um, just want to mention, first off, uh, uh, I think Chris mentioned the subculture in his... Uh, oh, yes. And that's actually a really, really good example, because uh, that, that's a pretty esoteric game, I think. But I've, I've, I've played a little bit, but my brother really, really dug it. Um, for me, it was more the fact that it was just uh, technically amazing. It had this uh, really, 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 really tight 3D engine. It was kind of a Wing Commander style game, but underwater, wasn't it? Uh, not Wing Commander. It's more like a, it's more like a trading game. I guess I would say roguelike, but then I haven't actually played it enough to know that it's. Yeah, I mean, I only have vague recollections of, of the actual gameplay there. Hmm. Uh, you're supposed to bottle caps and shit off the the bottom of the ocean and trade for them, uh, but it's got this really really. Um, neat sort of idea where uh, the entire game world, and it's a, like Chris said, it's a very, very live world. Uh, you know, lots of things happen, you get to, you know, you get to cross paths with uh, different traders and, you know, just people going about their business. But the whole thing basically takes place, if I remember correctly, in a bathtub. Like, it's all toys and just really? crap. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong on that, but that's that's my recollection of the game. And it was really, really, really good in that respect. Neato. Uh, a couple other, uh, couple other ideas. You mentioned uh, The Longest Journey, and yes. I, I get what you mean, but then the first game, at least, in terms of just how... Um, I, I guess it had to do with uh, a lot with budget and technical limitations. I get what you mean in in that there's a lot of characters and they're doing stuff and having you know discussions around you and it's sort of a living world in a sense but it's it just feels a little bit too sandboxed a little bit too um, kind of intentional uh, for me to consider it a, a really good example for that sort of thing. It is a linear game. 
not not in not in the, the actual adventure elements. It's just that as you walk around, you know, everything is is sort of designed to make you feel as though, say, when you're uh, walking around Arcadia um, in the main city there, it, it feels alive, but only it feels only alive up to how much is necessary for it to feel alive in order for kind of the atmosphere to, you know, to work. It's, sure, yeah, it's kind of curated. Yeah, curated is, is a very good word for it. Okay. Um, so other examples I had in mind, uh, one is Little Big Adventure. From oh, way yeah. Back when. And I haven't, I haven't played that in years and years and years, but I have a very, very... I have very strong memories of uh, playing it for a few hours with a friend of mine, and it it just felt alive. Like things are going on constantly in that world. You know, people walking about. You get to talk to people. It at least for the the section of the game that I can recall, it just felt very very kind of vivid. Uh, the the game world. That's uh, it was yeah, I mean, it was huge and diverse. I remember it is like a big open world kind of a Zelda sort of an experience in terms of uh, exploring the world, or like Ultima maybe a little bit. Yep, um, that that's that's my recollection of it as well. But uh, it it had been way too many years um, since I've played it for me to to speak about it. Me too. I haven't played it since it was on floppy. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to remember if I have like any other examples off the top of my head, but let's go with uh, with Bianca to begin with. Sure. Most obvious one that occurs to me is The Sims, especially oh, Sims yeah. Four. The because, simulation. Yeah, and so you base so you do so although the game doesn't nothing happens while you're away. So when you're in the game, stuff is always happening. So if you have multiple households going, which I like to have, you. And you switch between households, you'll find that there's development and stuff has happened. And you have to uh, bring yourself back up, and you realize that this world is now living; it's all your own creation. So you're looking down on it as more as an overseer, but you're still feeling like you're part of this world, and that you have a guiding hand because it's developing, it's living, it's breathing. People, the Sims come in; they they're born, they live their lives, and then they die horribly because you're probably a a, a sadist. Like oh I sure. Am. Plus, you can also take your hands off the controls entirely, and everybody will live their lives however they feel like it. Yep, that's what I've, I've done that a few times. Or mm -hmm. you can uh, just, you can micromanage one person's life to shreds while everyone else gets to have fun and otherwise uh, party to party hardy until they uh, crawl into bed exhausted but happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, same. And similarly, um, let me see what else there is. Well. And the most, in a way, kind of do feel like that. Good because, ones, anyway, do. Yeah, good ones. Like World of Warcraft, sometimes you go in, you go in, at least with the uh, newest one with your garrison, you go in, you feel like this is a living world. Because everyone's patrolling, your uh, followers aren't always in the same place except the ones you assign to certain um, buildings. And even then, they don't stand in that building all day. They wander around occasionally as if they had a business to attend to. Oh, and your garrison, that's right. Yeah, so, these, so there's constantly... People patrolling, sometimes they stand around. Your followers look like they're talking to each other. They may not always be talking to the same person. So it feels like a living world. Oh, my favorite example of that, I think, is for the first six years of that game or so, in the main city of Stormwind, there was a little boy running around with a girl 
a little girl running after him, and the little boy had stolen her doll. doll. Yeah. And she was running after him saying, give me back my doll, give me back my doll. You're going to rip it his, her arms off. That's right. Then, um... After when, Cataclysm. After Cataclysm came out, now the little boy is chasing the little girl around. Because she has his gorilla doll, and he's mm -hmm. uh, crying, it's, it's, uh, she's going to do these horrible things to, to it. And you never know when they're gonna, where they're going to be exactly. Maybe they run around a set path, I'm not sure, but you run across them somewhere. That's just one example, anyway, of... In the Ultima 7 kind of style, they do kind of give the NPCs their own motivations, except for the NPCs that whose job it is to stand there in the exact same place until you talk to them. Another one, it's we more recent. We had a, a discussion about, specifically about Ultima 7, I think. We did. Exactly around this aspect of it. Yes. Uh, at a pretty, what is it, like episode 9 or 10 or something? Yeah, thereabouts. This was more uh, co-host co Chris's... Uh, jurisdiction, but I was playing it a little bit. Another one that actually occurs to me is the Grand Theft Auto V, because see, you know when you uh, switch between characters, they're not just static and left where you left them when you switched, because you, you control three people. When you switch, sometimes someone will be waking, if you, for example, if you're switching to uh, Travis, you'll wake, you'll wake up in your underwear and it gets drunk out of your mind. Yeah, you I know, like that. Even if you left him in the same position, you know, in his car, in his driveway, fully clothed. That's right. Yeah, so that, that world trick. feels very living. Like they have, like even when you're not playing, there's like these, uh, there's like little lives going on, which is really fascinating. And then as you're playing, the other characters even have, continue to have their own motivations and do their own thing until you switch and control them. Yeah, I would probably argue that the protagonists themselves are probably the least believable characters in the Grand Theft Auto games. Mm. They are the least believable, but when you're not controlling them, they get some uh, life. Yeah, in Grand Theft Auto V, I do appreciate that, how you, you, you can switch between protagonists and you never know where exactly they'll be or what they'll have been in the middle of when you take control. I do appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Well, in terms of sandbox games, uh, there's also Sleeping Dogs, which actually gives a... You know, it, it doesn't necessarily make you feel as though the world is, you know, is busy without you as such, but uh, there's, you know, a lot of people walking around just doing stuff, living their lives... Uh, it's pretty compelling, but that's, I think, sort of a, what you'd come to expect from any kind of AAA yeah. uh, sandbox game nowadays. That was a beautiful one, though. And I can never get out of my head the sound of that one guy asking, why don't you have a pork bun in your hand? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I remember that. Yeah, oh. That was a beautiful game. The city looked incredible, and it was quite heavily yeah. populated. And there were, like, little uh, incidents where sometimes a criminal would... Uh, would steal some lady's purse, and you had the option to go run down the criminal and return the purse. Yeah, yeah. it was a, it was actually a pretty good game. Um, it wasn't not particularly bad. Well known, but pretty good. Yeah, I appreciate a game like that that uh, focuses on melee combat instead of guns. Yeah, and the melee worked pretty really well there, almost as well as it does in, uh, in like the Batman games. But mm -hmm. uh, I think that the overall setting was a lot more compelling. Then, you know, once the novelty wore off, I felt that Sleeping Dogs was a lot more compelling than uh, than the various Batman, you know, the modern Batman, uh, like Arkham, whatever games. Oh, yeah, I would agree. I haven't finished any of those, including Sleeping Dogs, but I came closer to sleep Sleeping Dogs being finished than any of those other games. Yeah. So, um, any more, Bianca? I've managed to write down a few as well. Well, I do agree with Brian on Animal Crossing as I played it as well, and it does feel like it is a living, breathing world, especially since 
all the characters, since all the NPCs somehow get to know your character and they have their own reaction to you. And if you're not there for a couple of days, they, uh, they have a specific reaction here to you having been away. And it's like, oh, I've missed you so much. Where have mm -hmm. you been? That's right. Or they, uh, and they react a certain times a year or anything you do. Oh, right. Or they all, if you get familiar <laughs> enough with them, then they ask you for a nickname and you give them something really uh, perverted and then they call you that forever. Yeah, or they ask you for a catchphrase, you give them something really obscene. Or per yeah, usually perversion is the way that you go in this game. Maybe that's just me, but I, I, I guess not. Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, giving, I mean, uh, giving childish, uh, childish names to, uh, to characters is, I think, a universal trait. That was good. I didn't have time for it on my show with Akigo. Hi, Akigo. But uh, one of my uh, guilty pleasures was giving terrible names to good <laughs> characters. Oh, you mentioned that at some point, I think. Oh, maybe I did mention it. Okay, good. I'm glad I did. Uh, what else okay. have you added to your list? Uh, well, I have a few. I don't know that, that they necessarily uh, reflect what, what Chris sort of meant in terms of attention to detail and... Uh, you know, the, the kind of random nature of, of what goes on. Mm -hmm. But there's um, three games that I have played and one that I haven't that uh, um, that always give me this, uh, you know, that, that sort of suck you in enough that the world is believably kind of alive and, and interesting and things happen outside of your sort of direct involvement and influence in the game world. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of those is uh, No One Lives Forever. Oh, yeah. What a terrific so game. And what a, yeah, what great setting and writing and yeah. all that stuff. You feel like I you're mean, spying on people, sort of. Yeah, I mean, regardless of which, like, as long as it's not one of the stages in which you're basically, you know, infiltrating uh, the, the bad guy's layout, layer or something like that, even, even the... the the one scene that's always sort of a, almost practically a game breaker for me, but still uh, worth discussing, is there's a scene in uh, No One Lives, Lives Forever where you have to infiltrate an office building, and it's sort of a stealth mission. You can't afford to be seen or you fail. And it's, uh, I, I really hate those, by the way. Like, I really, I'm, I'm not big on stealth games in general. I hate them, yeah. Especially ones that are, not strictly, um, not strictly stealth games to begin with, but still have, you know, still have kind of uh, forced stealth sections to them. Right. That's the worst. Yeah, yeah, I can't stand that. Yeah, so still, like, wherever you go, things happen. People move around. You get, you know, you, you, you fight with bad guys in this hotel in, the, where is it, I think, Marrakesh or something. Like oh, Morocco. right. That's at the beginning. Uh, yeah, and it's still, it feels very much alive. Like, before the, the shootout starts, people are, are walking around and, you know, discussing things. And, and the dialogue, like, the random dialogues that you get in On Us Forever are just absolutely brilliant. It's like, would you like to buy a monkey? <laughs> a very good monkey. <laughs> that, that was one of the best dialogues I've ever heard in a computer game um, ever. Mm -hmm. so, no One Lives Forever is one example. Uh, sort of a, a second example from in the same vein, I guess, is uh, Bioshock Infinite. Oh, yeah. Where right until the point where all hell breaks loose in... Uh, uh, oh, shit. In, in Colombia, is it? What's yes. it called? Yes. 
yeah, so right in, up until that point, you, you just sort of have this, you know, opportunity to kind of walk through and experience the, the city and the setting. And it does feel very, very much alive. Yes, it does. Uh, Amazingly so. And even though it also feels a little bit kind of curated, it just works. Everything is, is so vivid and lifelike. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. It I was so impressed with that game. Yeah, it works. Um, oh, what, so, I, what I appreciate about uh, Bioshock Infinite, at least versus the previous ones, is that I'm really tired of games that put you... Uh, they put you like in the crumbling remains of this beautiful society where all the yes. interesting stuff happened a while ago and you don't get to watch it. So at least in Infinite, you get to kind of see the transition of this perfect utopia yeah. to it starting to crumble. And, it be, and your comment about it being feeling a little curated makes sense because it's supposed to be perfect on the surface. So, there is, so you kind of expect there to be a certain amount of control to create this perfect facade of utopia of a utopian paradise mm -hmm. so so it's artificial construct makes sense oh yeah and even yeah, after all hell breaks loose there, i have noticed pockets of it still be alive as you said mm -hmm. boy do i wish that game went on with no shooting at all i actually really enjoyed also that like i really enjoyed the action i mean it's very kind of simplistic but Me too. I, yeah it was just fun to play and and the game you know, it has its issues and quite a few of them, but it's it's just so mind-bogglingly beautiful. So it's just beautiful. The craftsmanship on that game is is amazing. It really is. And from what I hear, it almost killed the team. They were so fed up with the project. I can I can uh, yeah I can see how that would happen. But it was you know at least maybe not for them, but at least for their audience, uh, namely me in this case, it was. Totally worth it. It's it's just a, a work of art, first and foremost. Oh, that's right. Although one thing that I'll say, contrasting No One Lives Forever versus Bioshock Infinite, in No One Lives Forever, you would often have the opportunity to uh, spy on a conversation between two people, and when they were done their conversation, then they would walk away and continue on their patrols or something. Whereas in Bioshock Infinite, these people would talk, and then they would just stand there like, like wide-eyed mannequins, yeah. sort of, and not do anything else. That was yeah, unfortunate. That's, that's I think I was probably too impatient to experience that more, more than once or twice. Uh, I almost never let them finish the dialogue. But uh, oh, I love the I love the dialogue and the writing so much. I I just uh, soaked up every word anyone had to say. Yeah, right. I I concur with Brian's observation of this because I I too would stand around. I'm going. Uh, don't you have anything more to say? Come on, say something. Don't that's you right. stand there twiddling your ass? <laughs> And twiddling your ass. <laughs> and twiddling your tongue. <laughs> yeah, I get uh, my. I usually get my. Uh, <laughs> your ass in a rut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I can see how that would sort of break suspension of disbelief, but. Uh, we forgive it though. It's a game. Yeah. Still, it's it's worthwhile. Um, a couple other examples. One is. Um, one is actually the original Deus Ex. Oh yeah. Uh, that one, you know, it, it's very, very kind of uh, focused on the central theme and story. But everywhere you go, you know, within the, the constraints of the technology of the time and the, and the budget they had to work with and everything else, still, everything feels very much alive. I mean, you walk around Hong Kong, it's, it's a very kind of rudimentary Hong Kong, but it, it still feels like 
just things are going on. You know, people are people are walking around apartments, random apartments that you can either walk by or you know, if you if you uh, go the crazy route of kind of climbing various walls and you know just going off the beaten path in Hong Kong, you get to see a lot of these apartments being renovated and you know scaffold scaffoldings and all, all of this random stuff that's going on and it, it really helps immersion you, you really feel like the world around you is you know is busy and is buzzing mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciated that aspect I don't think that's that's kind of in the same vein as what Chris had in mind but it, it really felt that way to me oh I think it is because that's very much an open world RPG kind of an experience well as, you know a, a much sort of more typical example of an open world RPG would be actually Fallout 3. Uh, sure. That I still feel it. Also, the world feels very much alive. Like, all, there's stuff always going on, but it's also in terms of storytelling, uh, sort of a lot more linear. So that kind of breaks that feeling that the world, you know, does not revolve around you. So I don't know. Like, I, I put a question mark, uh, you know. On my list after Fallout 3 because I don't think it exemplifies this, this notion of you know a, a live world around you that does not revolve around you as well as the other ones we discussed but I still feel, feel it deserves a, a mention. Yeah it does it's along the same vein as the uh, Skyrim's like uh, oh yeah Oblivion and the Elder Scrolls. Yeah although the everyone mostly NPC some NPCs are there waiting just for you Others are uh, going about their business and have and couldn't care and couldn't care less what you're doing. Well, that is until you start shooting everyone with your bow and arrow, your fireballs, and uh, stabbing the town guard in the back until you ramp up a nice, uh, nice wanted kill. level Please. of uh, five stars and um, right. <laughs> a a mine of same. several thousand gold. Mm -hmm. It's largely the same with Fallout 3, except it's laser or plasma weapons and bottle caps. But. It's basically the exact same game, Fallout 3. <laughs> yeah, except that Skyrim poured the living shit out of me, and Fallout was uh, tantamount to a religious experience, so... Uh, it was yeah. exactly the opposite for me. Oh, I love Skyrim. Yeah, I love, I love sci-fi, I love a post-apocalyptic setting, but the Fallout games the from 3 on totally bored me. Have you played the original two? Uh, not very much because, as I've mentioned before on the show, games with a like games that have like a global world timer stress me out. I'm always constantly thinking that I'm wasting my time doing something like enjoying the sights when I should be making progress. Honestly, with I don't even remember that there actually is a global timer in, in the original Fallout's, but even if there is, it's there is. practically meaningless. It's like it's not something that has any any significant impact on your gameplay. So it's not you know it's not it's not something that I feel would matter in your experience unless you you know unless it already has and you you've tried it out. But if you haven't, you should you should give them a shot. I uh, should. I think I read about the global timer, and that's what dissuaded me from getting too far. But I did enjoy the original two Fallout's more than three and up. Okay, fair enough. I don't know if it was the fact that Fallout 3 used the Oblivion engine, but it felt like I had already done this stuff before, and they were just <laughs> yeah. kind of reframing the exact same fantasy quests as sci-fi quests, 
But then I started thinking, oh, I guess Star Trek is the same as Lord of the Rings with all of those different races and tropes and stuff, and I'm just going to kill my most enjoyed hobbies if I think too much about it, so I think I just yeah. shut myself up. Went too deep down the philosophical rabbit hole, I think. That's right. So one last example that I actually haven't played, but I have read a lot about and heard a lot about, mm. uh, that, that uh, reportedly really, really does this well, is uh, The Last Express. Oh, yeah. Everyone but me has talked extensively, at least, about, about this game on, on uh, my show. That's yeah. another one with a world timer. It, it does have a world timer, but I mean, in the sense that the world is alive and does not revolve around you, I think that's very intentionally, but I think from what I've heard, it, it probably exemplifies uh, Chris's kind of point, probably best of everything we've discussed so far, except maybe The Sims. Um, you know, things happen all the time around you, and you could miss out on them, which is the global timer thing. And, I, I, you know, your your sort of objection to that game mechanic uh, resonates with me. I'm not a huge fan of it either. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, giving you a very immersive experience that makes you feel like the world around you is, is very much alive and active, I think it's probably one of the you know, best examples out there. Yeah, it's kind of mandatory, I guess. If it's going to be a living world, then by definition, you can't be everywhere at once. You're going to miss stuff. Exactly. I guess that's the magic of the living world on a timer, is the fact that if you see something happening, you're kind of lucky to have seen it. Exactly. So, yeah. Like, I haven't played the game. Um, I know that I should. It's one of those... Uh, there's probably an English English expression for it, but transliterating from uh, from a Hebrew expression, it's like a, a, a massive hole in my education. Sure. Uh, gaping hole would probably be a better uh, translation for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 supposed to be very, very, very lifelike um, in terms of sort of the the things that happen and your ability to interact with them. Yeah, from what I know about it, uh, Jordan Mechner, if, you're not, if you uh, don't know, by the way, Bianca, Jordan Mechner is the guy who made Prince of Persia. He also made this game called The Last Express. He's, uh, he started off, I think, in film school, so I think his motivation for The Last Express was to kind of sort of write a film, a story about each of the characters in the whole game, and they play out from beginning to end, and they intersect with each other, but your story is wherever you choose to be. That's what you will observe. And there are ways to finish the game by going to all the right places and doing the right things at the right time. And if you don't do certain things, then they comment on it. But uh, I should get into that. It just feels, just by the definition of that game, the description of that game, feels so daunting to me. I'm being a baby about it, I know. Because it's definitely a gap in my kind of gaming repertoire as well. Well, it's not about being a baby. It's about, you know, recognizing your, uh, your preferences. My irrational preferences. Yeah, it's it's sort of like my picking up uh, uh, a flight sim merely because it's you know, famous and you know sort of a landmark game. Mm -hmm. I just don't like flight sims, and that's not going to change just because a game is awesome. Sure, we can't all like everything. Preferences exactly. don't have to be rational. Yeah, preferences don't have to be rational. That's right. Good that. So yeah, that's that's everything I have. Uh, on Chris's, uh, in answer to Chris's kind of unasked question. Yeah, oh, I'm glad we discussed it. That was a good one. Mm 
All right. Well, then, before we get to our main topic, why don't we uh, briefly talk then about what we've played recently or this week? Uh, Tomer, why don't you go first? Uh, sure. So, uh, this week, which is pretty much everything I've played recently because I've, I've had a few weeks uh, of not being at home very often, so uh, I couldn't really use my uh, desktop, and <clears throat> Macs are not exactly the best gaming platforms. Right. So, uh, what I have had the chance to play this week are two games. One is, uh, I think you've discussed or, or at least mentioned it before, is uh, Crypt of the Necrodancer. Oh, yes. I own that. Yep. So that's, uh, you know, in case anyone has been sort of living under a rock lately, it's an indie game that's uh, basically a rhythm game. You control a... It's, it's sort of a cross between uh, a dungeon, dungeon crawl and a rhythm game. You basically do a dungeon crawl, except that you can only move or attack uh, based on the rhythm of the music, which is, by the way, really, really, really good. It is good. And, uh, yeah, and enemies also can only move or attack uh, based on the, on the same rhythm, and they move in different patterns. So you need to sort of learn your way around or, or learn to plan sort of your sequence of moves to correspond to the music as well as the patterns of uh, behavior and movement that your enemies have. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's also pretty good. I haven't played it all that much, probably just you know two, three hours. Uh, it's pretty enjoyable. It's also incredibly frustrating that until you get a good grasp of the game mechanics, you, you will basically find yourself kind of doing the same set of levels again and again because it's uh, it's divided into these four level zones where the, the fourth level is a boss level uh, but if you die at any point during the zone you restart the whole thing from scratch so it's not a huge uh, huge deal in terms of lost time especially because you also get to, to keep some of the loot uh, like diamonds and stuff that you collected so it's not really that bad but it's it's just really annoying to have to, at least for the first time, you nail down, you have to sort of go through the same zone, you know, a dozen, two dozen times uh, easy just to, you know, just to get through it. Um, yeah, I found that pretty frustrating. Yeah, so it is, it is kind of, at least for a sort of an impatient gamer like myself, but it is a very interesting and well-executed game. It's got cute graphics. It's top-down 2D. Um, it's kind of old-school, really, really cute graphics. It's got great music. Uh, it's got uh, um, sort of a wonky, kind of zany sense of humor to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's really worth really worth the look. It's not that expensive either. I think it's like 10 bucks, maybe $20. Um, it's, it's definitely worth trying. Uh, the second game that I've played is called Bulletproof. And, uh, oh, I didn't catch that. Sorry, what's it called? Bulletstorm. Bulletstorm. Oh, yeah. By People Can Fly, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's from People Can Fly, who, uh, for those who are not you know, familiar with the name, are uh, the team behind uh, Painkiller from a few years back. Yeah, from Poland, was... I think. Oh, are they? Okay, that's I think so. Um, yeah, so it's so Bulletstorm is a sort of a third-person 
tactical shooter, I guess you could say. Um, it's third person, is it? Or is it first person? Well, Storm was first person, I'm pretty sure. Well, whatever it is. Anyway, it's 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 very similar to in, in gameplay to another game uh, that I've played not that recently, but uh, you know, like a year ago, called uh, Binary Domain. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, oh, you know that one? Yeah, I do. I barely played it because it didn't interest me that much, but it has an amazing engine that I had to see for myself. So here's the thing: a, a couple of things about Binary Domain while we're at it. First, it's a Sega Sega game. Which is, you know, in of itself, really, really, really surprising because Sega is, you know, I was almost convinced that they're defunct at this point. They they do almost nothing, at least visibly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's already interesting. Second, it's actually a much better game than most people think because, for whatever reason, most people are either not not particularly interested in it or, you know, they just read too much into the the marketing hype uh, because the game had. Uh, basically, voice-controlled uh, squad actions, like you could literally put a, a microphone, uh, you know, hook up a microphone and give commands like you know, fire or restore or take cover, that sort of thing. And reportedly, it works really, you know, it doesn't work particularly well, or at least not consistently. But and that, and that turned a lot of people off the game. But it actually has several things going for it. First. Uh, I think at least it's it's just a lot of fun, and it's kind of repetitive, and it's not particularly challenging. You don't need to think that often, but it's an action game, so that's you know that's legitimate. I feel this is Bulletstorm uh, you're talking about. That's uh, binary domain, but it's also Bulletstorm. Uh, it's also those are basically very simple games. You don't have to think that much. You just have to move and shoot. So the game mechanics are really, really easy to grok and uh, kind of like Wolfenstein, the new order. You, th there isn't a lot of complexity or a lot of, you know, sort of um, depth to, to the action. But it's, you know, if you're, if you're into sort of uh, braided action fun, then the gameplay really, really works well. Yeah, it's kind of serious Sam style. Well, it's it's not exactly the same kind of uh, game mechanic, but it's it's the same vein in that you know just turn off your brain and enjoy the ride. Yeah. Uh, so with the difference between so Bulletstorm is really similar to Binary Domain with uh, with two sort of major caveats. Binary Domain had actually a very well written and executed story to it, which Did is it? something a lot of people missed. Yeah, I missed it. And uh, it also had some of the best voice acting I've heard in a game in sort of years and years. Oh, hold on a sec. Uh, a friend of mine just came in the house. I'll just say hi and come back in a second. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm back. So uh, it had a really, really good story. It had some of the best voice acting work in any game I've played. In recent memory, it really did, yeah. And uh, contrary-wise, Bulletstorm actually has a really, really kind of rudimentary and shallow uh, story. And it also has, you know, it has decent production values. I mean, it's not crap or anything, but it's it's not particularly good at anything. 
except that the the main what ostensibly is the main antagonist in the game, uh, General Serrano, that's the name of the character, mm. is just so ridiculously over the top that it's just absolutely hilarious. He you is know? hilarious. Like, yeah, it's, it's like a combination of, uh, you know, really, really uh, hard-ass drill sergeant mm. plus, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, like if if the, the Marines from, from Aliens, like the second Alien movie, <laughs> if they were actually capable and not just a bunch of, pardon my French, bunch of wusses uh, that break <laughs> apart at the first sign of trouble, <laughs> uh, you know, if they actually were, were hard asses, but as cliche as they were in the movie, they would be a good prototype for that character. He's oh, just yeah. consistently over the top throughout the game, and it's hilarious. Yeah, he's super amped up and very uh, insulting in very creative ways, which is hilarious. Yeah. Great writing. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. It's so, a very stupid, simple story that's very well told. Yeah, yeah, it's very well told. It's got great graphics. Uh, it's got fun action. I mean, you can basically just spend... 10 hours turning off your brain and enjoy the day. It's like a 10 or 12 hour long action movie. It's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Did you have any trouble getting it to run on your machine? Uh, not at all, actually. It works. Worked out of the box. Like, uh, I have a I have a, a reasonably modern machine. I upgraded my uh, my desktop probably a year ago. So it's, it's you know, it was sort of mid-high-end when I upgraded it in terms of like video uh, video card and CPU, but it's nothing to write home about. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything worked out of the box. I mean, it, it doesn't skip any frames. It's, you know, I run it at the highest resolution with everything cranked up and it just flies. I think my issue when I tried to run it last was, I think I had two issues. Number one, the FOV was really zoomed in and I had to edit a config file to change that. Oh, that's strange. And, and also, the mouse sensitivity was, like, totally off the charts, and so I oh, had yeah, to yeah. adjust that, that. That actually did have to adjust. Yeah, that was just... It was optimized for a gamepad, and they, like, barely even considered the mouse and keyboard, unfortunately. So that needed tweaking. Yeah, but it took, like... You know, it takes, like, three seconds. You just enter the menu. Yeah. Tw twiddle with the thing, and you're good to go. So oh, I couldn't do it through the menu. I had to edit a... The, like, putting the uh, mouse sensitivity on the lowest possible for me was way too sensitive, so I had to oh. edit a config file. Oh, okay, I just had to knock it down a couple notches. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that the game, I don't know, maybe it is considered buggy. Um, I haven't had any issues with it, though. It was just kind of not, not scalable or not really optimized all that well for PC, at least in the controls. Everything else, it runs beautifully, and it sounds beautiful and looks good. It's gorgeous. I love the scenery and everything. Yeah, uh, I still think binary domain uh, beats it even in that respect. It's it's more consistently like it's less uh, high techy. Like that yeah. the the 3D engine is not nearly as powerful, but it's also a lot older. So that's fine. But uh, yeah, in terms of uh, in, in terms of just art direction, Bulletstorm is is very very good looking, but uh, binary domain is beautiful. Yeah, those are, those are two kind of very similar games, but I feel that binary binary domain is by far the better one. I just They're could not get into binary domain, and I think it's for the uh, also irrational, selfish reason that I find a lot more fun killing people and monsters than I do destroying robots. Feels kind well, of I could pointless to me. That. If I if I could kill people with impunity, 
we'd have less of a population issue. Right. <laughs> it's true for any of us. Yeah. Oh, so that's what you played this week? Uh, yeah, that's all I have. All right, Bianca, how about you? What have you played this week? Well, besides my usual World of Warcraft, I've also uh, picked up uh, Wolfenstein The Old Blood. That's pretty good. It yeah. is pretty good. Not as good as the new whatever, the, the new, new order, order, I thought, but Old Blood I had a good time with. Yeah, because yeah, I haven't had... I, I like the, 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 uh, the new order, so I wanted to try the Old Blood. Finally got past those... The uh, first part where you first come out of the uh, jail, the jail hole you're thrown into. So there's no better way to describe it: the fucking hole in the ground. Um, and you've got these electrified Robo Nazis. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm like, how the hell do I walk past these guys? The Nazi bots. Yeah. So I pretty much got my face blown off the first ten times I tried to walk by them. Mm -hmm. And let me see. So finally, I got past them, and now I'm happy, and I just have to free my. Uh, my whatever the hell that dude is. Some dude. Yeah, yeah some dude. That's my objective. Free the dude. Mm-hmm. What else have I played? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we're both snickering because we've seen you play this, and... Oh, this is the most ridiculous friggin' game. I think it just came out yesterday. Yeah. Shower with your dad simulator 2015. Do you still shower with your dad? <laughs> yes, that is the full title. It's on Steam, and it's... Uh, 8-bit pixelated goodness of you as a kid trying to go find your right your dad the right dad in the shower and you have to run across the floor everyone's naked and everyone has a pixelated dick <laughs> that sounds like a very compelling uh no sorry i i can't bring myself to <laughs> it's unbelievably weird but the game is a dollar so you really can't go wrong yeah, gain the dollar and uh, you, you unlock you other modes. Wrong. You could go wrong, but you won't. Because it's actually a good you game. Could, it's just really embarrassing. If you pay a dollar for that, basically. Sure. <laughs> but at least that's what it sounds like. But uh, It really is worth the dollar. Even if it weren't for the zany uh, presentation, there's actually how many game modes? Three or four or Several five? Several game modes. Yeah, so it's... There's a, it's a, there's a two basic ones. Where one is uh, you pick just one the one father and son pair, and then you have to keep running your the kid to the, the uh, matching dad, to his, to his dad, and then the second one is the dadathon, the dadathlon, <laughs> which is where you have all three dads and all three kids appearing, and you have to, and each time a kid appears, you have to match it with the uh, corresponding dad. Right, so there's like the black-haired mustache dad, there's the red-haired dad, and there's the, the, the black- Marsh dad. The, the black dad. Well, no, at least they didn't call them sugar daddies and, you know, got it over with. That's just, the, the black mustache dad just sounds like a, a really, really good porn name. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, we mentioned a good porn name the other day. What what were we talking about? Remember? I don't remember. Oh, I forget. I don't remember is not a very good porn name, though. Right. <laughs> no. I think I must have said something stuff. really stupid. Uh -huh. You're like, eh, that's a good porn name. I know. Well, that's all that I get. That's how most of our conversations start. So that was Shower With Your Dad Simulator 2015. Do you still shower with your dad? Do you still shower with your dad? <laughs> yeah, and there's no censorship, and everyone has the game. Well, there's optional censorship. For Americans. <laughs> no, like in the game, there's like censored and uncensored, isn't there? Um, you can choose? You can choose, but it's optional. Right. But, uh, every, but, uh, Everyone has an 8-bit dick hanging down. Right, it's like four pixels. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's charming. 
Well, in, in uh, you know, in the old 14-inch CRP days, that actually be a, a, a substantial uh, real estate. Right. Well, it's well Right. It is like old school, kind of EGA graphics kind of style. Yeah. Even the intro screen is completely in that style. Yeah. Oh, the intro is amazing. Um, it, they kind of emulate this um, Commodore 64 sort of a thing where they call it like shower, dead shower OS version 3.2 or something. <laughs> and then um, they have uh, like, uh, it looks like a text file that would come along, like a file ID.diz that would come along with a pirated game. Oh, saying, yeah, NFO? Yeah, NFO file. There you go. So it's got all these like real nerdy inside jokes as well. Mm -hmm. It's very, very funny. It's honestly, it's just that loading the game up is worth a dollar. Actually, you get an achievement for loading the game for the first time. Oh, yeah, you gotta love that. You double click the, <laughs> the entry in Steam, and that's good for an achievement. Yeah. Okay. It's really zany, and it's really fast paced. Yeah. For, uh, so, yesterday, so when I bought it, Brian says to me, Why did you get a copy for your dad? <laughs> yeah, right. She wasn't really comfortable buying that for her dad. <laughs> I didn't think it was a good idea. Maybe, maybe that's for the best. Now you just have the pleasure of having that show up on his screen whenever you're playing it. <laughs> yeah. So if your dad is on Steam, you may not want to buy this game. And even if he is, uh, just look the other way and and act dumb when he asks you about it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> was that all you really played this week? Um, I played some Binding of Isaac. Haven't we all? Yep. Uh, I have to, I, I have and to, more of my cat petter game. What's that, Tamara? I have to admit that I've never played Binding of Isaac, but I know that I'm missing out. Well, that's a like very, very one good of game. those folks. If you like action action games, like kind of in the framing of a ro of a roguelike, it's fantastically good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll post. definitely give it a shot one of these days. It's totally worth it. The um, there's an expansion coming out in the next uh, month or two. After birth. So I'm sure that the original game will be cheap very soon. Yep, and uh, oh, it's a lot. Pretty cheap, huh? Yeah. That main, I've, uh, I did play another game this week. I got nostalgic after uh, last week's uh, a week or two, whatever it was ago, when we did the uh, consoles. Mm -hmm. Um. I have an emulator that I got through uh, Steam, which lets me play classic Genesis games, so I have Sonic 2 for it. Well, they and, sell the games individually. It's not like you bought an emulator. Yeah, they sell the games individually. Yeah. And so I was looking through, after feeling nostalgic, and saw that they had columns. I actually I played a bit more of it, and I was like, yeah, happy. Super happy. In happy land. <laughs> yeah, I know you love that game. Yeah. And, of course, more Orion Trail, which is, uh, they now have a... Since I last uh, mentioned it, they have a new, a new, a third area, and they've expanded to have a how-to in the two in the uh, options screen for people who haven't played it before. So their tutorial is quite minimalist, and uh, it doesn't interfere with gameplay. And the music is uh, much better. They have more missions now. So if you've kickstarted it, you really should consider playing it some more. And if you haven't uh, tried it yet, it's definitely worth trying. Even if it is an early access. For an early access game, it's pretty stable. Yeah, it's almost ready to go. And speaking of the music, I've been listening to that musician. I, first, I had only heard of this musician called Rainbow Kitten just when Bianca loaded up this game, and I love the music. And it came with a soundtrack, too, right? Yes. So I copied it to my machine. I've yeah. been listening to his music all week long. He is a great musician. He does, like, kind of chiptune instruments, and a lot of what he does is kind of, like, dancey techno electronic stuff, but he also has some kind of 
uh, like jazzy songs that are in the chiptune style. He's a very, uh, he's a clever uh, musician with a sense of humor. It's really fun to listen to his stuff. I'll put his uh, Bandcamp link in the show notes. All right. So that's what you played this week? Yep. All right. I will briefly mention three games that I played this week. Um, because we watched the Wing Commander movie this week, unfortunately. <laughs> that's, a, that's a movie I saw it in the theater. I was like the, the world's biggest Wing Commander fan as a kid. I saw it in the theater and I thought it sucked. Which is a shame because the the film was like written and directed by Chris Roberts, who also made the games. But uh, it sort of introduces new things that are never mentioned in the lore of the game. So it uh, just like every video game uh, movie has to do. So that's a little bit weird. They have all this whole like race of the the chosen ones. Basically, it's kind of weird. Um, so we watched it again this week, and the first half of the movie, I was all on board and thought that it was really nicely accurate and true to the games, and then the second half of the movie happened, and I got kind of less and less enthusiastic about and it. And it sort of went downhill from there. Yeah, it was totally generic and boring after that, but uh, it, it definitely has its moments, and if you're a huge fan of Wing Commander like I am, it will get you in the mood to play the game, which is what I did. So I played Wing Commander 2 a little bit this week. It's hard! That's a game that I finished as a kid. Did I use my joystick or keyboard? I don't remember. I think I used my Gravis joystick, two-button joystick, for that one. Um, I just did it on my gamepad, so maybe that's why I had trouble right now. I should plug in my flight stick and play it with that. But it is bloody hard. And also, um, the the GOG version of Wing Commander 2 runs on DOSBox, and I couldn't really find the right uh, clock settings, the right CPU clock settings for it. If I made it too fast, then the animations were all fast and the gameplay was pretty fast. Um, if I made it too slow, then the gameplay was the right speed, but the frame rate would start chugging. So it kind of never felt quite right. So maybe that's the kind of game that you really need to play on the original hardware. I don't know. Had a great time with it anyway, but it was very humbling. Um, I played some of Grandia 2 uh, Anniversary Edition or whatever they called it. Um, I mentioned this a, a week ago or so, that they re-released this game, which I loved on Dreamcast, and had played a little bit on PC as well. This is like a re-release of the PC version. It's 15 years after the original game came out, and this re-release, it's not in widescreen, and it has a lot of little quirks that have always been in the game. I felt like they really phoned in this uh, re-release, like they just wanted a cash grab. They really didn't put a lot of effort into making it any more modern or better. So I actually got a refund for it. It's pretty rare that I get a refund on Steam, but this was one of them. Maybe I'll buy it when it's on sale, but perhaps not. Maybe it's better off living in my memory. It's a very good JRPG, though, with a really cool um, combat uh, timeline kind of a mechanic, so I like that. And the last game that I will talk about, um, I hadn't heard of this. It's called Inside My Radio. And thank you ever so much, Ben Chandler, for buying me this game out of the blue. That was awfully gracious and generous of him, so I do appreciate it. Um, it's increasingly rare that I will play a game and finish it at all. But this is a game that I actually finished in one sitting. It took about 80 minutes or so. Very cute indie game. Um, it's kind of like, uh, it reminded me of Terry Kavanaugh's VVVVVV, but uh, it was largely synchronized with the music, similar to uh, the Necrodancer game. So uh, you can kind of move freely at whatever speed you want, but if you want to do a jump or a dash or a stomp, those have to be 
on like the four four beats on every beat of uh, like the drum, uh, and uh, the uh, environmental hazards are kind of synchronized to those as well. So the combination of you being locked to this metronome and the environment being locked to it makes for some interesting moments. And it had a good bit of variety. It has some humor. It has nice graph graphics. It has a good boss battle at the end. Um, the music is terrific. It's kind of uh, house electro techno kind of music with a little bit of funk in there as well. I had quite a good time with it, and I would really recommend it. Really fun one. So Inside My Radio is what that one was called. So that's all I that's all I'll really discuss uh, uh, that I played this week. Why don't we go ahead and uh, proceed with our main topic? Oh, gee, already? Already, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so our main topic this week, we are going to talk about some of our favorite hardware that we have encountered over the years. And I think that we've all we've all put together our list here. It's predominantly PC computing hardware. But I've got a couple of things that are not necessarily computer hardware. Considering how, how much time we spent on the preamble, I'll probably let our guests do the majority of the talking. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, I mean, a, a predominantly uh, focused on PC hardware. I can talk a little bit about other things as well. But, Whatever uh, you like. What's that? Whatever you like. There's no wrong answer here. Okay. Yeah, so, it's not even PC um, hardware the title. It was just favorite hardware. Oh. Favorite whatever. Oh, did I say PC hardware? Whatever. Favorite hardware in general. So be, be my guest and start wherever you wish. Well, um, let, let's start with a, with a recap of, of sort of uh, the, the set of computers that I went through over the years and see where that takes us. There's a lot to discuss. All right. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm 32. I was born in 83. So... Uh, and as I mentioned uh, in our sort of uh, uh, conversation before the actual podcast, the PC market, or rather the computer market in Israel, um, was in the very early 80s predominantly uh, ruled by Apple IIs and Commodore 64s. And then, for whatever reason, it sort of got stuck. In that uh, in that era, until the very late '80s, when PCs started taking over, and that was it. And then it was all PCs. So really, we didn't have all that many, you know, all that diverse uh, a kind of computing uh, scene in Israel. Uh, it was predominantly PCs. So oddly enough, I started off uh, at the age of like my parents got on loan from uh, from a couple friends of theirs a Sinclair ZX Spectrum, mm -hmm. uh, and that was when I was four. That was, I'm pretty sure that was literally um, the first computer I've ever run into. And uh, actually, no, it was the second, because uh, anecdote time. My, my first computer experience was uh, a very kind of life-shaping thing, uh, where I would, uh, I, I went to a, probably to a kindergarten, I can't remember details that much, but it was probably uh, a kindergarten, either the one my brother went to, who's a little older than I am, or uh, a neighbor of ours ran a kind of toddler grade uh, daycare, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one I went to had a Commodore 64. Uh, and, you know, it had 
oddly enough, it had the, uh, I think it was 1851 floppy drive. It was literally an 8-inch floppy drive. And that wow. was the only time I've ever seen 8-inch floppies in actual use um, in my life. But uh, the, the thing that I remember particularly well about that scene, and it's literally one of my earliest memories, was that as I was walking towards that, that machine that I, you know, I sort of asked what it was, and I was told that it's a computer, and uh, obviously I had no idea what that was, but both because it was early days and also because I was really, really young at the time. Uh, but I distinctly remember walking towards the machine, and you know those kind of that kind of cliche scene in a movie where someone sees something, and <laughs> this choir of angels in the background, and it's like, <laughs> I had one of those moments and knew that 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 thing was basically what I, what I was gonna base the rest of my life on. I had no idea what that meant at the time, but I knew that computers was what I wanted to deal with. Uh, pretty much for the rest of my life. And that was a very early memory for me. And actually, um, that that actually is what I ended up doing because I'm, I'm a software developer by trade. So, you know, w whether it's my uh, computer history hobby, my uh, uh, being a, a computer game aficionado or just my day job, pretty much my life uh, outside my family revolves around computers. I can relate. So that's, that's literally my, my first computer memory. Uh, my first computer, though, was uh, that CX Spectrum that we got on loan from a friend of our, from friends of ours, uh, friends of the family when I was about four years old. We had that computer for a year, and that's the computer that um, that I learned my to write my first uh, program on in BASIC. And it was probably something stupid like, you know, 10, print, whatever, 20, go to 10. Mm -hmm. uh, um, same as everyone. Uh, but that's that's really also one of my earliest memories. And it had the, the two distinct memories that I have of this thing was, A, that the basic was really um, the, the rather the, interac the interaction between the keyboard and the basic was really funny because... Uh, they realized that a lot of people would be doing basic programming on it, so they hardwired uh, specific keys to specific commands, so that if you typed, say, P, it wouldn't type P. It would, you know, contextually, it would uh, just type print. Interesting. Yeah. That's on the spectrum? Yeah, that's on the spectrum. Oh. And because the keyboard, it had this weird chiclet keyboard that was just really, really shitty. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a good thing that they did that because it saved you on a lot of keystrokes. Uh, so that's one memory. The other one was that they had this, uh, we had a manual, or, or I don't know if it's a manual for the machine or for the basic or something, uh, that was just this incredibly futuristic kind of thing. You know, it had like a... a, a a Tron style, I guess you could say, um, uh, drawing of like mountains and this, uh, you know, this kind of really, really futuristic, wireframey, glowy kind of uh, drawing on it. Cool. And for some reason, that really resonated with my, you know, four-year-old self, <laughs> and still to this day remember not not the picture or or the drawing as much as the way that it made me feel at the time, the one sort of wonder that I had as a kid. 
From four yeah. years old, really? Yeah. Wow. So those are, you know, really early memories. I was a really impressionable kid, I guess. And uh, a lot of the early stuff, early computing stuff that I saw really left a mark on me. Uh, so that was the first machine I had. Um, moving up to 1989, when I was six, uh, my brother uh, got... My grandfather bought a computer for my brother. Uh, and at the time, like growing up, we, we were, you know, we weren't poor as such, like we weren't starving or anything, but money was uh, pretty scarce in our family. So my uh, grandfather uh, got this computer for my brother that was, for our family, hideously expensive at the time. Uh, but in, in retrospect, it wasn't that much money even then. And the machine itself was uh, was a piece of crap. <laughs> I mean, we're talking 1989. It was an, oddly enough, an Israeli-made uh, IBM XT clone or, or PC XT clone, I think, um, that had uh, a bunch of really curious stuff in it. Like to begin with, it it came uh, packed with uh, a 14-inch. CGA monitor, uh, two five and a half, uh, five and a quarter inch, um, you know, sing, uh, normal density but or double density, double sided floppy drives, and 512k of RAM. Uh, the two curiosities that it had was, it had, I've, I've tried doing some research on it, but I literally couldn't find any mention of this machine on the internet. I actually, have uh, not that specific machine, but a second machine that's exactly like that in my collection uh, that's still in storage at my parents' place. Uh, so I, I might, you know, go back to, to try and really dig into it and figure it out. But it had this weird kind of hybrid uh, CGA display adapter where um, you had a switch on the back of the machine that would turn it from a normal CGA-compatible display card to... I don't know if this was a, uh, you know, a Hercules uh, display standard card. You know, the, the Hercules was yeah. a, a video card company that had, in the early days of the PC, had a monochrome but very high-resolution display adapter. Yeah, it was beautiful. Was, Sierra Games often supported those. Yeah, Sierra Games did. A lot of, a lot of early games did, but uh, I think it was less common at least maybe outside of north america anyway it was less commonly used in uh, sort of home pcs i never knew anyone here. that had one sorry i never knew anyone who had one yeah i think it was pre predominantly geared towards business users because it had this uh relatively high resolution um monochrome display both in text mode and graphics mode oh it's probably it's good for spreadsheets Precisely. So it's, it, it, it didn't necessarily have more kind of real estate in terms of how many characters that the, uh, the on-screen character matrix had, but the, the, the font that it used had, I think, 14 scan lines per character, whereas the original CGA just may do with eight. Oh. So the, the characters were actually rendered uh, a lot. They just looked a lot crisper. You know, yeah, they were beautiful. rendered a lot sharper than they were with the CGA. Mm -hmm. So it was very practical for business users that actually had, you know, predominantly text-based software that they would deal with. Mm. Uh, thing is, my monitor at the 
time, my 14-inch CGA monitor uh, couldn't really handle the um, sync frequencies for whatever it was, whatever mode it was. Like, as I mentioned, I don't know that it's actually a, a Hercules adapter because it was way too long ago and I could never get it to work with the monitor, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Uh, so that's one curiosity uh, with that particular machine. And second, like a lot of uh, uh, PC clones from the 80s have had a turbo button. Yay, turbo yeah. button. <laughs> yeah. And I think it had a 10 megahertz uh, NEC8088 clone mm. uh, that it would either run at the kind of IBM stock 4.77 megahertz uh, frequency. Mm, I was going to that, say, I thought that's what the 8088 frequency was. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was... Not only was it pretty low uh, clock speed uh, for the time, because it was 1981 already, and uh, you had you know higher spec stuff way back then. Yeah, 8086. It was just a crippled CPU. It had an 8-bit data bus, and that basically slowed, it, slowed everything to a crawl. Mm. So the turbo button, what it did was it let the um, sort of the... the licensed but clone processor that was uh, spec higher run it at its full speed of whatever it was that was installed in the machine at the time, um, which uh, I'm pretty sure was a, a 10 megahertz uh, CPU. And that made it a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Not fast by any means, but a lot faster than a, than a stock IBM PC. Yeah, that's almost like a 286. Well, in terms of clock rate, yeah, but the 286 was, uh, was a... Oh, more advanced processor. It, it, you know, given the same instructions, the same amount of memory, same uh, clock rate, it would still be anywhere from two to ten times faster uh, than a similarly uh, clocked 8088. Oh, that's because, significant. Yeah, it had it had a full 16-bit data bus. It could uh, it could execute the same instructions uh, at a lower clock cycle, like it. It took less clock cycles to do the same amount of work, so it was just just way faster in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that's that's that for the PC, and that was the computer that we used for uh, what is it, four years, I think, until '93, and that's the computer I basically grew up with and learned to program on and play games on and did everything on, and just for reference, uh, in 1989, the I think. 286s were pretty much the norm in North America, and 386s were already on the market. Probably right. not, you know, for, for cost reasons, probably not very popular, but you could buy them mm -hmm. if you were buying a high-end machine. So this thing was a dinosaur uh, when we bought it. Sure. And then we stuck around with it for four additional years. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's a piece of shit machine. <laughs> and, uh, oh, so your first upgrade must have been like a religious experience. Well, actually, my first upgrade was upgrading that same PC from 512K uh, of onboard RAM to 640. Oh. Uh, and, and that allowed us to play... Oh, man, I can't remember which game we did that for. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, there were certain software and certain games that you literally could not run uh, just a 512K uh, that we bought the machine with. That's really interesting. Was it a chip that you would add or replace? Um, I can I can give you a good guess. Like at the time, um, 
I don't know that it was the same everywhere else, but because computers were both really expensive and really rare, rare in Israel, um, at least up until like the, the mid early to mid nineties, um, people were almost religiously, like almost superstitiously afraid of messing with them. It's like, no, don't touch your computer. You'll mm-hmm. break it. That sort of thing. Right. Uh, so hardly people- anyone, um, I'm sorry. Even here, people were all, don't touch the computer, you're going to break it if you breathe on it. Well, they're so expensive, too, so yeah. you don't want to risk it. So it was, it was really uh, really kind of a, a widespread belief that if you screw with the computer, you're going to break it, and it's not going to work anymore. Right. And it's true, uh, it was especially true in the DOS days where you could basically, you know, move you know, an inch to your left and do something stupid, you know, hit the wrong button, whatever, and, and just do some damage. Not really to the hardware as such, but, you, you know, you could format your, your DOS disk easily right. and just not be able to do anything with the machine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so no one, hardly anyone actually upgraded their own machines. And furthermore, uh, I was six, so <laughs> right. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't do any of the any of the upgrades. Um, Fair enough. But in my best guess, my best guess based on my, uh, you know, my, my uh, the the sort of knowledge about hardware that I accrued uh, at later at a later time in my life uh, is that it probably had. Uh, something along the lines of 16 sockets for uh, uh, either probably EDO RAM or maybe uh, maybe it was FPM RAM back in the day. Uh, you could basically switch out the, the chips or maybe add a few missing chips to get more memory, you know, put more dense memory in the same sockets. And then you'd probably have to... Uh, uh, to flip a few dip switches to configure the, the motherboard to accept the new memory because right. uh, no one had, like, you didn't have software controlled bias at the time. No, it, it was, was all manual. Dip switches and that sort of thing. Sure, thus the switch on the back of your uh, video card or whatever for your video mode. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Uh, so that's probably what you had to do. And it, it was probably really, really easy. I mean, it was certain, certain computers, in order to upgrade your RAM, you literally had to not only replace the memory um, the memory chips in their sockets, but you also had to sometimes hardwire uh, you know a bunch of wires from certain uh, you know either a, a certain uh, what's the term like leg or lead of the uh, memory controller uh, yeah. through to a resistor or whatever. You had all these hardware acts that you needed to do. But PCs and certainly the the more kind of modern PC clones were generally pretty modular and pretty straightforward. So you didn't really have to mess with these things. Right, it got uh, better over the years. But back then, not only yeah. were you know, the, the even the parts that were replaceable. I remember like the ISA riser cards and stuff. You had to shove them in so hard just to get them seated properly, and there are all these sharp edges and stuff like that. So it, even then, it wasn't easy. Oh yeah, sharp edges were were definitely an issue up until the what is it the mid two thousands when the basically the Chinese caught up with the uh, you know caught up with their manufacturing quality and started uh, uh, producing really really cheap but high quality uh, PC cases. I think it was also the big manufacturers like Dell where they would have to install or replace parts all day long for thousands of machines, so they made it as modular and fast as possible. 
you you would think that, but actually it took the the kind of OEM manufacturers a really really long time to catch up with the uh, kind of the uh, enthusiast hardware market in terms of uh, manufacturing quality. Huh. I remember actually uh, I had this on my list that the first uh, computer case that I ever bought intentionally, like I did the research, I picked it, and then I bought it, mm-hmm. uh, was way back when, I think it was probably 2003 or something, and it was an Antec uh, SX1030B computer case. It was a tower case, it was black, um, which was unusual at the time, because we are talking early 2000s. Mm-hmm. It was literally the first experience that I've ever had, or, or maybe it was actually a few years before that, Anyway, it was the first experience I've had with really, really high-quality mechanical hardware for PCs. Uh, it, it didn't have any rough edges. It was modular. It was really well designed. Uh, you could, you know, you had this uh, uh, kind of hard drive cage that you could sort of pull out of the case uh, right. in order to install hard drives in. So uh, you didn't have to put it right really, in the case. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it was really a, a well-wrought um, computer case, and it, it was my first experience, like I said, with with kind of uh, high-quality mechanical hardware for PCs. So um, I remember that it took, like, we had uh, that. That was either just before, or just after I drafted uh, to the Israeli Army when I was eighteen, and uh, I, I distinctly remember that we had. Uh, um, both Dell computers and ThinkPads, like most of the most of the machines that they were running uh, in in the army where I served, and it was you know thousands of, of different desktop computers and servers and that sort of thing, and I was struck by just how absolutely horrendously bad the the hardware design was on those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took years and years for OEM to catch up to the to the enthusiast market in terms of uh, manufacturing quality. So you, you would think that with Dell having to support and maintain and, you know, hire lots of technicians to deal with the, the you know, millions of uh, units that they were selling, you'd think that they'd spend some time on, you know, and, and resources on proper industrial design. I don't think they did for, you know, up until there was absolutely no choice because they were, you know, it was becoming sort of a competitive disadvantage to have shitty Chinese manufactured uh, computer pieces way back when. Oh, you might be right. I wasn't thinking of it in terms of the uh, enthusiast market, but just for their own assembly lines. Yeah, I, I would expect that as well, but they just never did. Yeah, you could very well be right. I was just wondering out loud, but I don't have the facts. Yeah. Um, so, where was I before the, the weird digression about cases? Oh, uh, so uh, around the time when you were uh, going to the army? Oh yeah, well that that was uh, years and years after. Well, so my what you what you said earlier about you know the first upgrade being a religious experience uh, was actually more so than you might expect because it was '93. Uh, I was at the time nine uh, nine or ten years old, and my brother had his uh, his bar mitzvah, uh, which for you non-Jewish or non-North American people is uh, basically the Jewish rite of passage for males when 
you know, if you're a boy and you turn 13, then uh, you go through this uh, ceremony and you're no, no longer considered uh, a child in the uh, sort of religious God-fearing sense. You're now a man, you have responsibilities, you're paying attention to uh, whatever. Um, we're we, uh, we're a, a pretty secular family, so basically bar mitzvah is a good excuse to have a party and have everyone give you uh, gifts. <laughs> the gifts are typically money, and then Sounds you take me. that money and you do something with it, which in my brother's case meant buying uh, a new computer, because our, you know, Considering that the first IBM PC came out in 1981, and we were using essentially the same machine with minor upgrades in 1993, <laughs> it was pretty much uh, overdue for an upgrade. Yeah, and, uh, we went all in in terms of what was available in the Israeli market. It was a ridiculously costly machine. It was a Packard Bell branded. Uh, 386 DX 33 megahertz mach based machine uh, and the, the normal stats are that it had uh, 4 megabytes of RAM, it had a 3.5 inch floppy drive uh, and 3.5 inch drives were uh, already uh, sort of the norm back then. I think around 91-ish uh, 5.25 inch floppies sort of uh, the market for those kind of dropped off and uh, they were being replaced with three and a half inch floppies. Uh, it had a hard drive, which was, that in itself was such a huge improvement in quality of life of course. that I can't even begin to describe it. Of course. So, yeah, I mean, moving from having no hard drive and having to just basically handle everything based on two floppy drives and even having two floppy drives was, you know, at that point, it was pretty trivial, but a few years earlier, it was, uh, you know, it was considered sort of, you had to splurge for it. Yeah. Uh, so having a hard drive not only made it easy to sort of have everything that we wanted at our fingertips, and considered that 100 megabytes might, you know, might, sorry, might seem ridiculous nowadays. Like, if you run Task Manager on your Windows PC, you're probably going to see Skype or Chrome hogging more than 100 megabytes of RAM mm -hmm. right now on your machine. Oh, but so if you're upgrading from, like, 600 kilobyte floppies or whatever, then that's a world of difference. 360 kilobytes. Oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah, and that was the double-sided, double-density ones. Years before that, you had either single-density, which halved it, or single-sided, which halved that, mm -hmm. and then literally have to, like, with the Commodore 64 floppy drives, you literally had to take the disket out, turn it over, and then uh, put it back in the drive in order to use the other side of the magnetic strip. Yep. Uh, so that was, you know, that was pretty damn inconvenient. So, yeah, moving from b basically being able to hold something along the lines of, what is it, 300 floppies on this one hard drive uh, was incredible. And also the fact that it was just so much faster than reading off the of floppies. I mean, it was nowadays. It's 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 just ridiculous to think about it. But you know, it could it could probably read uh, you know like 150k off of the hard drive, at, uh, you know, in one second or something along those lines. Uh, and that sounds really really pathetic until you stop to consider that the floppy drive would maybe read you know 12 kilobytes 
per second off of the floppy. So mm -hmm. it was just tremendously faster. Um, so yeah, those are those are kind of the um, the basic aspects of that machine. But the really, 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 really uh, incredible part of that experience was that we bought along with uh, what um, what used to be called the Creative Multimedia Upgrade Kit. Uh, oh, with the CD-ROM drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. So it was 93. We just uh, moved from a uh, crappy XT with CGA graphics, no hard drive, and no sound card to this monster 386 with a hard drive and and the sound card and the CD-ROM drive and a super VGA adapter. So wow. that was just... You know, it wasn't even an upgrade. It was sort of like moving from a, a rundown condo that's going to fall, you know, the ceiling is, is pretty much going to fall on your head at any given time to moving to this, you know, amazing kind of penthouse in a, in a you know, in a nice part of town that costs millions of dollars. It was that level of an upgrade. It's like going so, from a bicycle to a spaceship. Yeah, pretty much. It, it's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's there's any number of things I could say about that, but the the, the really fun thing about the this creative creative uh, technologies multimedia upgrade kit, it, it contained a um, it was one of the early kits I think probably the first one, uh, and it, uh, I managed to do some research and actually found uh, the exact model, so it contained a Sound Blaster Pro uh, the the second version of it. Uh, and we can, you know, digress as long and as deep into sound cards as you like. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I currently want to mention is it came with a single speed CD-ROM drive with a caddy. Oh, so I love those. Those are so sexy. Those are, those are cool. They're actually really, really, really not very practical. <laughs> but, I mean, it's no, they're so huge cool and they need a powerful them. motor. And, but I don't even know what the point of them was exactly. Well, um, you actually had either tray-based or caddy-based uh, CD-ROM drives at the time. And if I remember correctly, I, I read a little bit about it, and I wasn't old enough to actually experience sort of the, you know, the initial um, introduction of this, like, CD-ROMs into either the music or the, the computer industry. Uh, so I couldn't speak about this authoritatively, but from what I've read and heard, the rationale behind having the caddy was that at the time uh, CDs were already sort of on the market for probably six or seven years as a uh, music replay medium. Mm -hmm. And people realized that CDs were pretty easily scratched. And once they got scratched, they obviously uh, were either hard or possible to use properly. And with software, that's even worse because whereas with a music CD, you might have, you know, a, a really bad set of bleeps or, or a jump or maybe even a, a track that you literally couldn't play. Uh, that was with Redbook Audio. With actual software CDs, which I think the standard was either White Book or Yellow Book. I can't even recall which one it was. Um, For data? With, yeah. I think it was white or black. Yeah. I don't remember. Well seems like white is the common denominator there, so mm. we'll go with that. Sure. Uh, huh. 
So with software CDs, uh, because the data is uh, because of the way the data is laid onto the CD, um, and because it's actual software, so you you know any any piece of software, unless you're really lucky, if you lose a data file, uh, the software is just not very likely to run. I mean, it's either the executable itself, in which case the software is corrupt, or it's one of the data files, in which case the behavior of the software in the face of this corrupt file is just completely unpredictable. You know, it might crash, it might uh, play corrupt audio, it might uh, play a corrupt uh, cutscene in a game. It could be any number of things that would go wrong if the CD got scratched. Right. So the rationale behind the caddy was it's a, um, you know, the idea was for you to have many, many different caddies and just stick the CDs in them for, uh, you know, for protection and so that you can actually use the CD, you know, without having to take it out of the, out of the CD jewel case and risk scratching. So that, that, the way I understand it, that was the initial kind of rationale for it. Okay. Must be expensive. Those caddies are pretty substantial. Precisely, which is why it never, you know, it never actually took off. Yeah. Uh, most people had either one or two. We had just the one. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing about it is, and I, I still have that same CD drive and that same caddy, uh, in my collection. So I actually tested this a while back. I still have the moves. Like I can still, uh, open the caddy, stick a CD in it, and then stick it into the CD-ROM drive with one hand. <laughs> There's a certain, um, motion to it. Like you need to use your, uh, your thumb and your, uh, pinky. In a, in a very specific uh, angle. Oh, to open the caddy? To pinch, yeah. pinch the plastic parts? Yeah. Yeah. So I still I still have it. Like, muscle memory remains, evidently, even 20 years after. That's cool. Uh, yes, that's pretty pretty awesome. Um, so it came with that sound blaster with a CD-ROM drive and a bunch of bundled, bundled software. Uh, and the amazing thing about the bundled software is... Um, there's a few anecdotes I can share on this, on this. But before that, the one thing that will always sort of have a soft soft spot for uh, creative technologies um, is because they bundled the CD version of Jones in the Fast Lane. Oh, nice! Kit. And if I remember correctly, you mentioned in one of the episodes that uh, uh, that you didn't even realize that the game existed? Yeah, that's right. I was only familiar with the floppy version until very recently. Okay, so, yeah, they, they bundled the CD version with it, and uh, it had voices. And, uh, you know, it's it's Sierra voice acting, but it actually works in Jones in the Fast Lane. Because it's such a silly game. game. Yeah, the whole game is just so over-the-top and so zany that it, it just works. Um, so that's one, one feature that bundled with it and a whole bunch of other stuff and the funny thing about a lot of the software was that it's it was intended for windows windows 3.0 uh, yeah at the time i think and uh like i said i was pretty young at the time like i was nine my my brother was uh was uh 13 at the time and uh none of us had you know we didn't really grok computers as such like at that point after a few years we had a really good idea of how to work with DOS. We had this vague notion of, you know, how to make things work and what memory is and a lot of that other stuff. 
But with Windows, um, or rather with any sort of you know, real operating system, which Windows probably wasn't, but yeah. never mind that, um, you, you get certain abstractions that you need to familiar, familiarize yourself with. So you didn't have your game support Sound Blast for Pro or Gravis Ultrasound or MT32. Like you had your game support the Windows multimedia uh, APIs, multimedia standards, and then you needed drivers for your specific hardware to, uh, you know, to connect the dots. Yeah, that's right. All the difficult manual stuff you had to do before DirectX came around. Yeah, and uh, with Windows, we we got, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of floppies with the Sound Blaster card as part of the kit including a, a driver disk for Windows, but we literally had no idea what that thing was, and it didn't have, at least as far as I can recall, it didn't ha actually have, like, a setup program. It just had the drivers on it, and you set them up through uh, through the Windows kind of uh, device driver or, or hardware device configuration when used. Oh, right, and any files or something, right? Uh, I'm sorry? Any files or something like that you're supposed to point to through the control panel or whatever? Yeah, I, I, I really, really can't remember the exact details of it, but you just basically had to, to install drivers, except that we literally didn't know what, you know, we had no concept of a driver. We didn't know what that was, so we didn't even think to install it, and even if we had thought to install it, we wouldn't know what to look for because, you know, you need to know that you're looking for somewhere where you can install new hardware on Windows. Right. And we didn't even have the concept because we were used to DOS. Right. Uh, so probably half a year, maybe more, after we got that computer, um, I, I was basically bored because I was a kid and had lots of free time. So I was fussing around with the computer and specifically with Windows. And I was, you know... My approach to kind of early uh, operating systems and software is sort of the same approach I have today for computer games. I'm a completionist. Mm. Like, I'm going to go through every menu, every icon, every file on disk, every option that I could conceivably find and, and explore, and try to figure out, you know, what, what can I do with this thing. I'm exactly the so, same way, especially with the old operating systems. Exactly. Because, well, we... Back then, it was realistic to actually go through everything that the OS offers. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you'd have to be insane to, to, tr to even try. Um, sure. But back then, I mean, with Windows 3.0, there wasn't all that much. And there were just weird things that I couldn't figure out at the time, like the ter terminal software uh, that came with uh, Windows 3.0, and I had no idea what that was for. Right. Uh, I do nowadays, of course, but back then it was just, you know... It was Chinese. Like I had no idea what that was about. Yeah. Uh, but I played played with it anyway. And so one day, by mistake, I actually managed to install the drivers for our Sound Blaster card on Windows, and suddenly Windows had sound. <laughs> you know, we had we had the, the the Windows chime and the you know all of the classic sounds, and more importantly, we had all of the bundled software that came with the multimedia kit, and. It, you know, we, we realized that at the first time that I realized that, you know, what, what I'd done, um, you know, what, what was the, the, the impact of this weird-ass process that I just went through to install drivers for the Sound Blaster thing, 
that I just, you know, my English was shit back then, and I had no idea, no idea what I was doing. But then I actually tried running, um, I think it was Microsoft Works or something. It was the original kind of CD-ROM encyclopedia. Oh, Encarta. Microsoft. Oh, Encarta, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember if it actually was Encarta. Like, Encarta is, is sort of thought of as the classic kind of uh, CD-ROM-based online encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that that was actually it. I'm pretty sure it was a Microsoft uh, bookshelf kind of thing. Oh, Microsoft bookshelf sounds familiar. Works was like yeah. a precursor to Office. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay, yes. yeah. So it wasn't Works, it was probably... Uh, yeah, bookshelf. Probably Bookshelf. Or multimedia Bookshelf was the name of a product, I remember. That's the one. Okay. And um, I-, I can't... Oh, yeah, it says so right here. Software Toolworks Encyclopedia, I guess. That oh. was the bundled encyclopedia in it. And then um, I just played around with it, and suddenly it actually played a video clip on, on you know for one of the one of the entries, and it had sound, and I was just blown away. You know, here's you know here's this piece of software that I could never figure out why it's supposed to be cool, and now it clicks because there's actual sound along with the crappy video. And the video is like 100 pixels by 80 pixels or something? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. It's just ridiculously bad. But, but it's it, incredible. But it was there, right? I mean, it was the first experience I've ever had with that sort of thing. So that was that was just an amazing experience. But uh, one, of the, one of the really, really, really kind of um, strong memories that I have, sort of this image etched into my brain, was we took the computer back home from the from the shop, um, and I had no idea what a CD-ROM was. Like it was the first time I've ever seen a CD. Uh, I you know I literally had no idea what that thing is. And then we, but I did know Jones in the Fast Lane because we had played the, the floppy version, uh, you know, with friends any number of times, and it's still one of my favorite games. Mm. Um, so we tried that out, and I remember. Um, the 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 way that it looked, it was so different from either a floppy or a hard drive because floppies you could both hear, you know, you could hear the motor running and the and the servos for the read heads and write heads typically. Yeah, it's like ah, 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 kind of sound. Uh, so it was very distinct. Hard drives were still noisy way back when, but were a lot quieter, and you couldn't, you know. Uh, unless you had one of those kind of external uh, LED displays, you couldn't really tell when they were uh, working or not because, you know, there was, wasn't anything mechanical to look at. Mm-hmm. So the CD actually was, the CD-ROM drive actually was kind of a between those two because on the one hand, it had this external LED and contrary to the hard drive or the floppy ones, it wouldn't blink. Because it was a single-speed CD-ROM drive, it was always running at the same transfer rate. It was always transferring 150k per second. Right. Uh, it, you know, it would just turn on whenever it was reading, and then turn off whenever it was not. So it was a very odd uh, experience, you know, being used to the same LEDs used for hard drives that would kind of blink rapidly, or floppies that would, you know, be accompanied whenever they would turn on, they'd be accompanied by this very, very kind of obvious noise. Um, and the second thing I remember is because it was caddy-based, 
the caddy itself actually had, like, the way it would work is you would put the CD in the caddy and the caddy in the CD-ROM drive, and then it would start spinning. Now, the CD-ROM drive had this uh, kind of plastic trap door that would not uh, close entirely when the caddy was inserted. So you could actually see the top of the caddy, and you could just catch a glimpse of kind of the, the, the edge of the CD rotating within the caddy. Mm -hmm. So that was just a, a completely different, it was a very kind of visceral experience with a piece of technology that I've never seen before. And I, I very distinctly remember seeing it at work for the first time with Jones in the fast lane. I was like, what the hell is this thing doing? Why is it behaving like that? I've never seen anything like it. And it's one of those early memories that are etched in my mind. It's sort of an odd thing to pay attention to, but there you are. Hmm. So yeah, the, this whole multimedia upgrade kit thing was was just amazing, and it opened up this whole new, you know, world of experiences that that uh, not only had I never experienced before, but also we were, um, you know, contrary to our previous machine, which was a dinosaur when we got it. Uh, when we got this machine, we were pretty much the only people people around with the CD-ROM. It was, in 93, it was still a very, very new, expensive, and rare uh, kind of toy in Israel. Mm. I know that in 93, it was almost standard for PCs kind of sold in North America. Not uh, in, in Israel, it was... Not so much in, like, the single-speed CD days. More when it was maybe double or quad speed did it start to catch on more. It was still yeah, pretty rare. Yeah, double, double or quad. Like, yeah. quad was, wasn't really... Um, around at that point, I think, even in North America, but I'm pretty sure the standard there was uh, was already double-speed CD-ROM drives, because yeah. uh, do you remember this uh, multi multimedia PC standard? From the yeah, Nintendo? the whole MPC thing, sure. Yeah, so uh, it had different levels to it, and uh, MPC level 2, uh, which dictated a 16-bit sound card and a uh, double, at least double speed CD-ROM drive was already out at that point. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that in that respect, uh, the technology in Israel uh, that was available in Israel for a given price point was about two, three years behind uh, what was available in North America. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was still early days uh, and in Israel anyway, and uh, we were pretty much the only people around with CD-ROM. And I remember sort of the, the early uh, purchases that we made for CD-ROM titles. So I think the first game that we bought was the CD version of Elite. Ah. And uh, there, there are two things to say. First off, you may want to uh, throw me off the show for saying this. But I was really never an Elite fan. I actually sort of hate that game. You know, I was never a fan either. Oh, okay. You That's can stick probably. around. Mostly because I hadn't played much of it, and by the time I did, I had already played the, the uh, predecessors. Or no, sorry, the, the, the ones that would come after. Okay, fair enough. Uh, for me, it was the first, first I've ever run into it, and I've always found it a really just not a compelling game at all. Uh, and more importantly, the CD version was basically the exact same as the floppy version, except you got, like, four different translations and an installer, and that's it. Mm -hmm. It, like, had, 
zero difference from the floppy version. Oh, that's a shame, and I assume none of those translations were Hebrew. Uh, none of those translations were Hebrew, and we, we didn't really care at the time. Like, um, we, we can digress into uh, the, the kind of Israeli translation industry for computer games, uh, if you like, but uh, really, that, that we didn't really care at that point. We already had, at least I already had at that point, a, a decent enough grasp of English that I, I couldn't be arsed with... Uh, you know, Israeli translations of, of various games. Okay. Um, but even if it was like, you know, it was really disappointing because it was a CD version of a game and it had like zero CD specific features. Uh, so we actually did something that was very, very uncommon in Israel at the time. Uh, and we uh, replaced it. Like we, we gave it back to the store. We said, look, this is bullshit. <laughs> This is not a CD game. I, I, I don't care. Just take it back. And uh, it was pretty unusual uh, to, to do that sort of thing at the time. But the sort of uh, consumer experience, the, the expected consumer experience in Israel isn't anywhere up to North American standards even today. But back then it was just horrendous. Mm. Um, but we did replace it with a, uh, a non-CD game for the same price, that was uh, Laser Squad. You may be familiar with that. No, it doesn't sound familiar. It's a precursor to uh, XCOM in many ways, and it's also the same designer. Like, it's the the Golub brothers, uh, Julian Golub, and his... Uh, I can't remember his brother's name. Assuming there even is a brother, I might be wrong on that, but mm. I'm pretty sure... Um, I'm pretty sure there were two of them. Uh, but anyway, it was... A very similar um, kind of game, except very kind of rudimentary uh, with respect to XCOM. So, yeah, you, you could literally see kind of the the, the basic pre the basic idea, the basic gameplay of XCOM, but it was just way, way, way more primitive. It was still good though. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a lot. So. Hmm. That, that was the first CD game we ever bought, and that was a, a real bummer. But other games that followed were uh, the ever-controversial um, CD version of Loom. Yeah. That I actually, I actually think is really... Like, I understand why people think the EGA version is better, and I can even agree to uh, a lot of the criticism. I just think that... Still, the, the a lot of the VGA graphics were actually really, really, really good. Uh, in some scenes, the EGA graphics work better uh, for various reasons, but generally the VGA graphics were fantastic, and the music renditions were just amazing compared to what you could get. Like, no one in Israel had, a, had an MP32, pretty much. And, yeah, that was uh, a Red Book Audio uh soundtrack exactly. on that, wasn't it? Exactly. They just basically rendered uh, the best kind of general MIDI rendition of the soundtrack that they could. Right. It was just really, really, really good. Mm -hmm. So it did lose out on some dialogue and uh, you know some close-ups of characters, and it didn't use on iMuse. Uh, I, I understand a lot of the criticism. I still feel that for someone who had never played either version of Loom, 
the CD version gives, you know, 95% of the same experience, and that's that's a hell of an experience to begin with. So, oh yeah, sure, and I mean, plus when you're trying to buy a, a game that uh, showcases the features of the new technology you bought, that's always so exciting in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can and relate. Also, uh, another thing is that the CD version of Loon came with uh, uh, a CD version of the 30-minute audio drama, oh. both extremely high quality, but more importantly, the version of Loon that was uh, available in Israel was uh, the floppy version, and it was actually translated to Hebrew. Oh. Um, and uh, if you've seen the video of Brian Moriarty's uh, postmortem. No, I have to watch that, the GDC oh, one. You really should because he, he works with a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of visual flair in his presentation. I've been uh, meaning to. He's such a smart guy. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really just a brilliant, 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 brilliant speech. I really loved it. Um, so he actually showcased the, the Israeli version, the Hebrew translation of Loom. Oh. And uh, Hebrew translate Like, a lot of games have their... Um, you know, had their uh, manuals and stuff translated, or, or at least a Hebrew, a reduced but straightforward kind of Hebrew how-to uh, included in the thing. But very few games were actually translated to Hebrew because, let's face it, it's not a particular, particularly financially viable business model. Yeah, the population isn't big enough. Yeah, I mean, in, in the 90s, maybe 6 or 7 million people in the world spoke the language. Right. Now that it's, it's maybe 1 or 2 million more, but still. It's like a tiny, tiny, tiny country and a very small population. It just makes no sense uh, to put the effort in. Yeah. Uh, but back then, someone did, for whatever reason, and it was a really, really good translation. And they also translated the Book of Drafts and the manual. Um so everything, it was really, really uh, an impressive translation effort. And I still have it uh, at home along with the CD version. But the funny thing about the, the Hebrew version is it was not bundled with the audio drama and cassette like the English version was for whatever reason. So it was the first of the... Uh, I've played the game on floppies any number of times, but it was literally the first time I've heard the audio drama uh, when we bought it on CD. Hmm. So that was that was a hell of an experience. Um, other purchases, uh, like early purchases for CD-ROM games, included uh, Rebel Assault. Uh-huh. Which, that was one of my first. Which I know a lot of people, uh, if I remember correctly, including you, uh, really, really love. Yep. But I always thought it was just... It was an amazing experience in that you actually get you know, to play Star Wars... Uh, and you get like full motion video and all that stuff, but it was just a fucking awful game. It, it was, was frustrating. So badly made in terms of control and actual gameplay. It was so frustrating. It was just shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's uh, fair enough. That's the that's the popular opinion of it. Yeah, in this case, it's like if you if you're you know, if you're so uh, kind of uh, fixed called that you're willing to beat your head against the wall in order to, to complete the game, then by all means go for it. It is a pretty visceral and, and really impressive experience for its time, mm-hmm. but it, it's just unplayable. It's just the technology primarily that made me so excited about it. 
the technology, yeah. the cinematography, the subject matter. It's like yeah. an experience to play. It was almost it's, secondary to me whether the game was any good, which it's, you know, it has its moments, but not much more. So, so that worked for probably a couple hours in my case, but then I just couldn't play it anymore and never played it again. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it just wasn't very good. Uh, another early purchase was uh, The Seventh Guest. That was my which... first. Oh, was it? Yep. Oh, that's, that's an amazing experience. It is. And that's also not a very good game, but the experience is it, fantastic. I feel that it's it's not a very good game. I'll agree with that, definitely. But I feel that it's been maligned uh, a little bit more than it deserved because, first off, it was kind of obviously more of a technology showcase than it was a game yes. to begin with. Oh, yeah. And it was very overt about it. Like, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't mistake it for being, you know, it was campy, it was it was really well made, but it was so, so intentional, it was pretty obviously, you know, it wasn't really a game as such. Um, no, it was just like it, a puzzle book where you had to walk, you had to figure out what room to walk to next to do the next puzzle. Yep, uh, and most of the puzzles worked really well. Uh, a couple of really bad ones were uh, the you know the maze, uh, yep. the micros uh, the microscope puzzle, yep. which actually on my original 386 actually was uh, a lot of fun and very playable. It was kind of like playing a a really 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 nicely rendered version of uh, like the old Othello game. Yeah, it was similar. Uh, so. In, in that respect, it was actually, it worked just fine. It's just that it's timer sensitive. So if you run the game on anything beyond that, you know, that, that grade of machine, then the computer just gets so incredibly smart, you're almost assured to lose. Yeah, so I've heard. Um, and then there's the word puzzle. There's one where you get a whole bunch of, like, cans with letters on them on, the, on a bunch of shelves. That was ridiculously like, hard. That was ridiculous. I, I imagine that was pretty hard uh, for a native speaker. It was very hard. For, like, for a non-native speaker, we just found the solution in a local computer magazine. Mm -hmm. They had this section with, uh, you know, kind of uh, hints on computer games, and they had a screenshot of that exact puzzle solved. And it, like, we looked at this, and I literally didn't know... Probably all but one of the words. Me too. It was like words like slyly, shyly, you know, just just spryly. Yeah, yeah. And and who says slyly anyway? I mean, I that's know, a tryst, crypt. They're words that you don't use in regular conversation. Yeah, shit insane. It's yep. Like, and and as a non-native speaker, I couldn't like. There was absolutely no hope that we would ever, ever, ever solve that puzzle on our own. Uh, but Fair other enough. than that, I mean, the presentation was fantastic. The, the full motion video was just mind-boggling at the time. Mm -hmm. And the music is still damn good in that game. Totally. It's still one of my favorite soundtracks. Absolutely, me too. Yeah. And the, the kind of the overture, the intro sequence for that with... Uh, I love yeah, it. The, the trilobite logo that pops onto the screen with the... The violin music. The background, that was just... Amazingly well done. Uh -huh. It's the first time I think I've ever seen a computer game that had this kind of cinematic, draw you in, full blown, all senses. You know that 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 to me 
is the real multimedia experience. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of this intangible thing where all of those different media kind of assault your senses at the same time and invite you in. Yeah, that was that was just fun. I, I still get emotional when I see that scene. It's like oh, the music too. just you you actually had that as the opening theme for one of the early episodes and uh, like I mentioned in my mm. voicemail a few weeks back, I'm still sort of catching up on on like the the middle episodes of the show, I guess. Sure. So I I have ever, like I've, I've heard everything from 23 I think onwards. And up to and including episode 12. Everything in between I'm still catching up on. Okay. So one of those actually had uh, the seventh guest intro uh, music as, as sort of the epi- episode's intro music. Mm-hmm. And that was just a lot of fun to, to listen to in the car. Oh, just, sure. You know, a major th- kind of threw me back uh, into my childhood big time. That's what we're here for. Well, I do remember as a kid... Going mostly, we would go from Toronto to the nearby Buffalo, New York, um, where my family would go on all these shopping sprees and stuff. And I would, boring. I would, have, it is boring. It was so boring. I would save up my money for months and months, and I would go and afford one game because they were like ten dollars cheaper if we bought them in the USA. But I would spend, so I'd go make a beeline for the computer store, buy my one game, and then I'd have to endure a whole day of shopping with my parents while I bought nothing else. Uh-huh. I would read the manual or something, but uh, I would stand in the computer store where they had. Demo stations. They just had the computers for sale, where they would have on a loop the seventh guest intro sequence, and I watched it over and over and over, just because the technology and the presentation were so incredible to me. I never got tired of it. That was amazingly engrossing for the times. Like you can, you can get enough of it, or or at least you couldn't if you sort of lived through it. Nowadays, I mean, a lot of it seems basic, I guess, but I still think that the music particularly holds up really, really well, even today. Absolutely. Right, so uh, that's that's sort of a wrap on the whole uh, digression on the multimedia upgrade kit, I think. <laughs> and I can, talk I can probably talk more about it, but I don't see the point. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, just calling that little... Uh, Trend, that little uh, digression, a uh, tangent. Yeah, it's quite a tangent. That's okay. Oh, tangent is a good word for it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, kind of reeling from uh, the revelation uh, that is, you know, if you listen to trolls and, and Frederick Olson, they have this uh, this thing they like to use. It's called the uh, digression junior high. Yes, <laughs> I really love that expression. Oh yeah, me too. I forget if I mentioned on the podcast. I, I uh, when I was just finished high school, I went to uh, a college in Toronto, Centennial College, just for one semester before I was too immature and stupid to stay in college, and I dropped out before working for a few years and coming back to college. But the uh, building that I was in at Centennial College was the Degrassi Junior High building that had been converted into a college. Was it like the the actual one from the show? The actual one from the show, yep, yes. The actual building okay. they filmed it on site. I found that out after I was a student, and that was pretty amazing. Then it all okay. kind of made sense. Oh, that's pretty cool. Super I mean, cool. I I was uh, I don't know that I was too young when the when the show was sort of at its prime, but I you never probably would have been young because you were born the same too. year. So I remember just watching it, my eyes kind of glazing over. I was kind of young for it too, actually. I never really watched it. I'm proud of that little bit of trivia, but I've barely watched the show. Yeah. Well, it was probably crap anyway. Uh, it is shite. It was, I think it was kind of groundbreaking for its day, but by the time I knew it existed, it was kind of old-fashioned. 
groundbreaking is relative. I mean, some people, well, it's probably a generous some, word. In some ways, Beverly Hills 90210 was groundbreaking. Oh, don't mention that show. It's so horrendously <laughs> boring. That was a boring show. Yes, I watched it. It was boring. It was a boring oh. show. Yes, <laughs> indeed it was. Trying to watch, I tried to bond with my mother over that. I just remember going, This is the stupidest shit I've ever watched. I felt stupid just for watching five minutes of that garbage. Little do that. I don't know which way's worse, that or Melrose Place. Oh, I mean, Melrose most, Place most TV does that. Yes, um, just makes me stupider. That's why we don't have one anymore. Yep. Oh, I actually watch a lot of shows, but it's very kind of you know, um, sort of pre filtered. Like, if I don't know what it's about and I'm not interested in it, yeah. uh, like, we don't have cable or anything, right? So it's basically things that I either buy or uh, uh, what is a politically correct term for basically uh, not buying. Watch now, buy later. Torrenting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because sure. you can torrent stuff legally. Well, you can't. You don't get like any of the streaming services in Israel. Netflix are, are now finally starting to consider moving into Israel mm. because you know it's it's. There's always like every country has its own kind of licensing mess around that. Unfortunately, Israel yeah. I think is especially bad in that regard, and also not. It's just not worthwhile to go through the motions because it's such a small country that you need to be really really careful. You know. You need to be really aggressive in, in selling if you want to recoup the cost of dealing with the legal wrangling. If right. you want to get that, that sort of thing done in Israel. Right. So no one bothers, uh, or at least no one has bothered up until pretty much now. So, right, with that tangent of the way, um, right, I'm, I'm sort of sifting, like, the the... the the 386 that I mentioned is pretty much the first kind of uh, major experience I've had with a powerful PC. Uh, it, it sort of taught me a lot about what, what the technology is about and what it can do and where it's going. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a whole bunch of stuff I can talk about uh, in terms of like the, the progression of the hardware, but also... Uh, you know, certain anecdotes and certain things that uh, that that happen along the way. Uh, and in my notes, I have a whole list of anecdotes, but more importantly, uh, I have three kind of sections, I guess you could say, or three topics that we could either pick one and cover or just flip through them. And that's uh, stories about my first CD uh, CD burner, like CD CDR drive, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, a whole bunch, like I could talk sound cards all day. We could basically start talking about sound cards now and finish in five episodes, if you like. Uh -huh. And also uh, video hardware, actually video adapters. There's actually quite a bit uh, to say about them. So I I'm not sure which way to go. So. Okay, we'll tell you what we we are at like about the two hour and two and a half hour or so point here. Why don't we kind of pick whatever hard you can pick whatever kind of hard hitting thing that you think you can sort of uh, cover and conclude, and then perhaps we'll uh, resume uh, the discussion on another show. Okay, sure. Um, cool. Right. So actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a couple anecdotes because I think that that's 
probably, you know, both more flexible in terms of when we can just stop and also probably a, a you know, a funnier way to, to sort of wrap up the episode. Sure. So, um, let's see, let's see, let's see. I have a list here. Uh, first off, I, I don't think I've mentioned this, but actually, um, like the, the topic for today is, uh, is favorite hardware. And specifically, I was focusing on PC hardware. Uh, the funny thing about it is that I actually ran a hardware site in Israel, like a hardware review site and guide mm-hmm. for PC hardware in, uh, between 1999 and 2001. Mm. And it sort of died when, when uh, us three founders of the site uh, drafted into the army. Ah. But it's really active for a while. So, uh, yeah, so I took my, my general interest in computers and my, you know, sort of the, the interest in computer hardware that I built over the years and then ended up um, building a, a website specifically for hard, hardware enthusiasts. So if you're, you know, I reckon a lot of listeners probably are PC hardware enthusiasts. So it's, sure. the, the site was very similar to um, what are sort of modern sites in that in that vein, like Anantec. And that's what Anantec I was thinking. Guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, so that's th- great. those are actually two of the early ones uh, in North America. And uh, yeah, it was actually around that time. Like I think Tom's Hardware Guide started in 1998 or something mm. that's like one maybe two years before we uh we started the one in israel yeah it's very and, early yeah it's pretty early and we were all really really young at the time so um you know i, I actually went through like i found it uh, archived on the Wayback machine which is really really cool by the way oh awesome yeah and i was actually pretty happy with the quality of like writing and depth of reviews that we that we managed to to churn out but uh, we were all between 15 and 18 when site ran, mm. and we didn't have money. Uh, <laughs> like we couldn't afford shit. So yeah, it was just basically us writing about like doing kind of um, editorials, uh, reviewing the occasional piece of hardware that we would buy for ourselves. And then when that gained a certain amount of traction, we actually started getting offers from uh, uh, either, you know, uh, enthusiast hardware, um, like importers, like people who, who actually imported those things into Israel, and also um, computer shops and stuff like that. So that's, that was pretty cool. So that, that's sort of what came out of, you know, all of this all this generic interest in anything technical and, and tech specky. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Are you uh, brave enough to uh, give us a link from uh, the Wayback Machine? Uh, sure, but it's probably not going to be very useful uh, because it's in Hebrew. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so there's very few people uh, around that can actually read that, but let me, let me just send you a link. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'd love to see it. Sure. I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of versions of it. You can you can just pick like the earliest one or anyone in the middle and they'll do as well. Oh boy, I love uh, the Wayback Machine. Yeah. Just, Always just handy a, for various things. Yep. Uh, a warning for the uninitiated, which uh, I take it you guys are, but uh, Hebrew is read from written from right to left. Like Japanese. Mm. 
Uh, you know, Japanese actually, actually can be written in pretty much any direction, left to right, right to left, top to bottom. Um, so it's a bit different. Hebrew is, is strictly right to left. Mm. So it looks very strange to, to people who haven't seen it before. And also the alphabet is, you know, it's, it's non-Latin. It's, it's just a really, really weird language. Yep. Uh, it kind of looks like Arabic, but more square. At least in the capitals. Uh, have, yes, they, they share a common root. The alphabet is completely different, but the languages themselves, like in terms of grammar and, and uh, uh, sort of the construction of words and, and shared roots are uh, pretty similar. Mm. But if you if you can speak Hebrew, that does not necessarily mean you can speak Arabic and vice versa. Right. Most people can't, actually. Okay, so there's two anecdotes that I can share here. Um, well, there's more than two that I can share, but two that, that I think I intend to share. So the first is called The Case of the Explosive Bar Supply. And uh, the way it goes is this. Uh, when I was around nine or ten, uh, I was. Um, it was in the summer vacation between third and fourth grade. Um, I met up with... Uh, a kid who was the um, the oldest son of a good um, of like old friends of my father's, whom they haven't met in, in years and years, and then they uh, found out that we're going to be studying in the same class at the same school, so they sort of put us together. And uh, at that time, they had a two eighty six machine in their living room that had uh, I think it was probably VGA, a VGA adapter. Um, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of things I remember uh, specifically about that, about our experiences with that machine. But the story in question was actually, as we were playing Star Control 2 on that machine, playing Super Melee, um, we were, you know, sitting around, playing, blasting each other out of the sky. And then suddenly, uh, I, I'm... I don't want to blow our speakers, uh, our our listeners, uh, you know, kind of eardrums. So I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna try and, you know, try and mimic what that sounded like. But basically, we were playing, and then something literally exploded. It was like a gunshot going through the house, wow. and it was from the machine. And uh, I was just staring at it, and uh, my friend was going, ah, don't worry about it, it does that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what? What do you mean it does that sometimes? Your computer explodes every now and then? And it says, yeah, yeah uh, I don't know what that is. It's, a, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. So I was, I was, you know, I was kind of flabbergasted, but, you know, he seemed to know what he was on about, so we kept on playing. And, you know, pretty much whenever the computer was, uh, you know, whenever we worked the computer hard, such as as we were playing Star Control 2, uh, Super Melee against each other, and uh, Star Control 2 was really advanced for the time. It had, like, four-track mod music, mm -hmm. uh, and we were playing it off of the PC speaker because they didn't have a sound card um, in that particular machine. So that was actually really, really impressive, but it pushed the machine really, really far. Yeah. And uh, whenever you push the machine too far, then once every 10 to 15 minutes, you'd have that, basically that explosion coming out of the machine. Wow. Oh, and nice. 
yeah, and uh, I was, you know, I was old enough to know that it's not supposed to do that, and I should be worried, but not old enough to understand, you know, what that could mean or, or what could possibly be the, the cause of that. And as it turns out, what happened was uh, that the power supply unit for that machine had a, um, a capacitor that uh, either due to age or, or due to just being a, a faulty part, it literally split down the middle. Like, yeah. you know those, wow. You know those capacitors that are sort of like a round thing standing on two legs? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not talking about like the cylinders, I'm talking about the ones that are sort of flat. Yeah. Okay, so it was one of those and it literally split down the middle and, you know, either part of it was, you know, you had like a couple of millimeters uh, between maybe one or two millimeters between the, the uh, different halves. Mm -hmm. And because it's a capacitor, then it charges and it charges and it charges. And for whatever reason, it evidently was a small enough capacitor that um, the fact that it was misbehaving didn't affect the, the power supply too much, like the output voltage and, and amperage of the power supply. Okay. But whenever it would discharge, which was, you know, once every 10 or 15 minutes when you put the machine <laughs> through its spaces, it would just, um, and, and I've seen it in action when it was, uh, you know, when uh, my friend's dad, who's an electrical engineer, uh, took it apart to figure out what's wrong with it. And it would just literally um, fire off a bolt of lightning between the two halves of the capacitor. Wow. Emit a massive flash. And the, and the sound of an explosion. It's like a miracle that that actually kept going. It's like the story yeah. of Hanukkah, basically. It's it's that plus it's a miracle that it didn't set the house on fire. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> like that that's the exact sort of thing that generates electrical fires. Yes. Like, yeah, and and we used like we played start control on that machine for hours on end, and my, <laughs> my friend had already known to expect that at that point, like it wasn't the least surprise. So I take it that it was probably running like that for weeks or That's something. That's incredible. Yeah, and it, it's just it's just incredible that it worked. And yeah, that, that memory definitely stuck with me. That's uh, a testament to the quality of the engineering of the machines, I guess. I think it's more of a testament to how basically simple they were back then. Mm -hmm. Because the like old CPUs and old computer hardware in general used to run off of either 3.3 volts, 5 volts, or 12 volt rails. Okay. And uh, it, it didn't suck in a lot of power, like you didn't need very powerful CPU. And because the hardware was based on, you know, it had, it, it was a lot less complex than it is today, so it was also a lot less dense. Um, you had a lot less of an issue with like variance in voltage and amperage and, uh, um, I can't remember the, the technical terms, like uh, magnetic sort of interference running from one kind of uh, electrical rail to another. Mm. You, you had less of these issues because it was running at much lower clock rates and it was a lot less dense and a lot less miniaturized. So, so it had a better you, margin for error. Yeah, I mean, you could basically get by with cheap ass, like, okay. Here's a second anecdote that has nothing to do with PCs. Okay. Um, 
the old, like the, what is arguably the first commercially available microcomputer, uh, that's the Altair, right. uh, the, the MITS Altair uh, 8800 from uh, 1975. Right. So I remember seeing in an interview uh, one of the people from the, uh, what is it, the, the West Coast Computer Club um, yeah. in California way back when. Mm -hmm. He mentioned that uh, <laughs> there's two, you know, the story is funny and the punchline is funny as well. So the story is some guy uh, came in with, uh, with an Altair in one of their meetups and it was probably 1976 or something. So Altairs were, you know, it was still a new kind of industry and no one knew exactly what, what microcomputers could do or what to do with them. But it was already sort of, you know, it, it wasn't really all that surprising that someone showed up with an Altair because that was sort of what, what the hobby was about. Right. But then he showed up with an Altair, he hooked it up, he... Uh, what was the expression? Laboriously keyed program into it because back then you had to do it opcode by opcode with like these. You had eight switches, one for each bit. And yeah, that's right, on the front of the machine. Yeah, and you had to flip it and like to to, uh, to have the right set of bits enabled on it, and then you had a separate switch to sort of feed it into the machine and move to the next one. Right. Um, so you, you'd have to do this manually every single time because it had no kind of no storage. storage. Yeah, yeah, all those storage. Crazy. So if someone sat there for like an hour or something and and just keyed the program into the thing, and then someone someone else uh, accidentally tripped over the power cable and disconnected the machine, uh -huh. so to start all over again. Uh -huh. um, so and he did, and uh, no one knew exactly what that was about. And uh, then eventually what he did was he, um, you know, he finished typing the program in and then he set a small kind of uh, FM radio receiver, like one of those transistor-based receivers from the early 70s, uh, next to the computer. And uh, he set it to a certain frequency and then he uh, started the program running. And then the radio that was standing next to the next to the computer started playing this. Uh, I don't know the song because it's not a kind of folk song in Israel, but it's called uh, "Fool on a Hill," I think. Okay, I don't know it by name. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting it wrong as well because uh, I've never heard it before. Uh, but the radio started playing that, and so what happened was that the computer was so kind of rudimentary and it was you know it wasn't particularly it, it wasn't badly engineered but it wasn't particularly well engineered either in terms of electrical engineering um, so it emitted a lot of interference a lot of radio interference and this whole thing about like FCC regulations about uh, you know how you need to shield your electronics so they don't emit too much interference um, and, and affect other devices in the vicinity was a new thing in the late 70s, like it didn't exist then. Um, if, you, um, if you read a little bit about the, the TRS-80, like the what's called the Trash-80, the, the original Tandy 8-bit uh, microcomputer, yep. you'll know that the reason, one of the primary reasons why the, the second model that was rushed, uh, the Model 2, was that they couldn't sell the Model Ones anymore because they weren't um, they weren't up to the new FCC specs 
with regards to radio interference. So it was, um, the reason I'm mentioning this is because the computer was just basically really rudimentary and uh, the programmer in question, whose name, I think it was Larry something, I can't remember his name, um, had found that if you basically run different lengths of loops through the CPU, like you, you would basically make the CPU work, uh, work hard for different grades of hard, but in a consistent manner, it would emit uh, different radio frequencies. Like it would have this uh, sort of carrier wave of uh, radio interference. That's that incredible. Oh, so that's like if you give it like a programmatic loop? Yeah, so you just basically ran different lengths of loops uh, so that the radio would play different frequencies and then use that to produce music. <laughs> that's because and it that, had no like magnetic shielding or whatever or interference. Exactly. That's hilarious. So that's that's a funny story to begin with, but also what I really particularly love about that interview was he finished it by saying that and, and he, he said it with a like the person they interviewed said it with a completely deadpan voice and like no inflection, no no facial expression whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And he said and uh, it was the first thing that any of us had seen the Altair actually do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Full stop. Like, that's it. That's how the interview finished. That's like so, the very definition of it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And it's literally the first useful thing that, that anyone had managed to do with that particular machine. That's so funny. <laughs> I found that pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Uh so, yeah, I, I don't quite remember how we got off on this tangent. But anyway, uh, rolling back. So that was the case of the explosive power supply. Um, the other one, other anecdote I can share, and we can probably wrap up with this one, mm-hmm. is one I title uh, The Shitty Motherboard of Doom, <laughs> or if you like. So what happened was that in 1996, um, so that's three years after that that wonderful 386 with that CD-ROM. Um, I had my bar mitzvah, and uh, the I used the money we collected uh, from throwing that massive party to buy uh, yet another new computer. And once again, we went full out. So there was a number of interesting things about that machine, but it was, it was a Pentium 166 megahertz uh, computer. And it was before uh, before the MMX variants came out. Mm. So it was a really powerful machine for its time. Uh, it had 30, 32 megabytes of RAM, yep. uh, 2 gigabytes hard drive. The two really, really awesome things that we did, and I had no idea what sort of an impact uh, either one would have on my life, was uh, we got a, a new 17-inch CRT monitor as opposed to the older 14-inch uh, that we had used up until that point. Oh, that's a so, really yeah. nice upgrade. So that that's an incredible upgrade. Yes, yeah. it is. Like, and it's a great one to start off a computer with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so up until that point, for seven years, we had used crappy 14-inch monitors, and uh, then we got the the nice big one, and that was just a huge upgrade uh, in quality of life. Uh, the other awesome thing about that machine was that we bought it with a Soundblaster AWE32. Oh, wonderful! So that was also, that was also my first introduction to wavetable, uh, wavetable MIDI renditions. Mm-hmm. And how, it didn't even, what's that? I was going to say, how is the quality of your um, 
of the modem that came with this machine because I know that when I had it, we had the shittiest modem. We had to replace our modem that was built into it. Oh, I, I actually should have. Oh, you had one of those odd Sound Blaster uh, modem uh, Sound Blasters that came with a with a built-in modem. Yeah, so the modem was oh, told shit. I've only read about the like I've only ever heard about these uh, as I was going to research for this episode, and I actually read about all the different Sound Blaster models. I never realized that they had one. Wow, I never knew that either. Yeah, we had the combination one because ours came with a Sound Blaster, but it also came with a modem, so the sound worked, which was great, but. We could never connect to the internet. And the people who sold it to us, um, what was it? Oh, yeah, Moody's Bay Computer in o- Computers in Ottawa. And I hope they shut down since then. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave us a Everything else worked fine except for the uh, modem. <laughs> That's amazing. I guess it makes sense since it's an audio-related device. Yep. Well, no, it only makes a very vague kind of sense. I think it was intended as an OEM kind of thing for cost reductions. Yeah. And that's probably why it also misbehaved as, as badly as it did for you guys. Oh, mm. so badly misbehaved. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't so, want to dig- digress too much into, into sound cards because that's, you know, that that's probably a whole other episode in of itself. Mm-hmm. And you've already actually had one. Uh, but I can always talk for, like I said, I can talk for hours on end on, on computer sound. We should do it. Uh, yeah, uh, anytime. So anyway, there were, there were thousands of versions of the Sound Blaster. It's ridiculous. They they produced a version for just about anything. Um, so that that was pretty awesome. But the the relevant or, or the salient uh, piece of hardware that the, the computer had was being a Pentium machine. It was based on Intel's, like, it needed a motherboard based on Intel's new Trident chipset. Uh, sorry, and the, and the Trident chipsets, also known as 430, FX, HX, VX, and TX, uh, respectively, the various versions thereof, um, it was a very, very, very uh, good chipset for its time, and it served with distinction for a great many years, but the motherboard in question was called uh, Intel... Advanced EV Endeavor, um, hmm. and it was a version of the Intel Endeavor motherboard that had no sound on it, uh, which was essentially a good thing. Now, here's the rub: there were two really, really, really bad uh, issues with that motherboard. First off, the computer—I uh, mean, we were upgrading from 386, so you know it felt so much faster that we didn't really have an, any idea. Uh, what what sort of you know performance to expect? It was just way faster, and that was good enough for us to begin with. Hmm. Now, a while after that, uh, a good friend, a good friend of ours, uh, his parents bought him a 486 SX based machine, uh, and we were really, really, really horrified to find that in many cases. His 486 based machine would run things faster than our Pentium 166 based machine. Wow, that is surprising, especially in SX. It's it's not surprising. It's ridiculous. Like there is absolutely nothing about that machine that should run faster. Yeah, that kind of defies the laws of the universe. Exactly. It's running at a. It's a. It's a. It's an older generation CPU that is not nearly as powerful clock for clock. It's running. It it was running at about a third of the clock rate 
it was uh, running at a, at a slower bus speed. It was just basically, you know, there was absolutely no reason at all ever for any, you know, anything you can think of why it would run anything faster than our Pentium. Yeah. So for a while, we, we tried a lot of different things, tried figuring it out. And for a while, uh, our, our chief suspect was our video card, which was a, a Diamond Stealth uh, 64 video VRAM. Uh, which was a a super VGA a PCI super VGA card with uh, two megabytes of onboard RAM. Now we were absolutely convinced that that thing was just really 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 damn slow compared to our friends. Um, in retrospect, really really crappy cheap ass Cirrus Logic uh, video card. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, what what happened was that along with the general kind of uh, weird slowness of the thing. What happened was that we uh, couldn't use any um, any parallel port uh, device with that machine. Nothing worked. Like our printer didn't work. Um, external or other. I'm sorry. Um, nothing worked that would uh, that would be full du- duplex. Rather, if you just send data out. So the printer worked because with a printer, uh, especially printers of the time, you would pretty much only send data out in the parallel port to the printer. You wouldn't read anything back in. Right. Whereas if you used a zip drive or a, a tape backup drive or a scanner. You know, or a scanner or you would hook the computers up. For, for whatever reason, I mentioned this on, on the UMB, uh, on the UMB cast, uh, one of the Hangout episodes. Mm. For whatever reason... Uh, null modem cables were just non non-existent in Israel, hmm. and everyone who connected um, two computers together point to point and did not have you know the budget for a for a full blown network uh, would normally use parallel cables for whatever reason. Hmm. Much so of it slow. Be, it was actually faster than the serial one. Oh, really? And cheaper and easier to get set up. So I don't know why that wasn't sort of standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never mind that. Anyway, um, yeah, so that wouldn't work either because you, you basically couldn't read anything reliably off of the off of the parallel port. And um, it took us ages to sort of uh, figure out that that's you know because the printer would work, but the zip drive uh, that that my uh, that a friend of mine had wouldn't. So we really didn't didn't have enough experience to kind of figure it out. Uh, and then when we figured out the pattern, we took it in to, um, to the computer shop where we bought the thing. And that was probably within half a year of us buying the original Pentium machine. And uh, they checked it out and, you know, we, we gave them enough, uh, you know, enough uh, concrete examples that they had something to sink their teeth into and troubleshoot. And then they uh, realized that for whatever reason, the... Either the, you know, basically anything to do with IRP3, uh, which is the one that's responsible for uh, the parallel port, I guess, uh, just didn't work with that particular motherboard. So it was really just a a crappy, crappy, crappy motherboard. And what happened was they replaced it with a Trident 2-based motherboard that was not Intel branded. It was just some random Taiwanese, you know, manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Nothing special. 
but it was just evidently reasonably well designed, and it was a, a later version of the chipset, and it just changed everything. The computer flew. Like, we got it back, and uh, mind you, we took it in to fix the issue with the parallel port. So that's the first thing we tested, and it worked fine, and uh, you know there was much rejoicing. Yay! <laughs> and then um, we just you know went back to running games and, and demos, uh, because we were already into the demo scene at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just... It took us a couple of hours to realize that not only were things running faster, they were running impossibly fast. Like, it's like, it's kind of like when you have a car and, you know, if you have a faulty choke or whatever, then the machine, then, you know, the car just literally is crippled. Like, it can't accelerate and it can't go fast enough. Sure. Or it's stuck in neutral because mom didn't pick it out of the right gear. (laughs) It was kind of like that. And it was like someone just came in and just removed whatever handicap there was in the machine and it just flew like everything everything that was uh, graphic that was graphical like demos games um, just ran like five to ten times faster it was insane wow um, yeah suddenly uh, we ran Duke 3D in full Super VGA and it just flew instead of like crappy three, 320 by 200 VGA uh, so that was you know, that, that was just an amazing case in which um, I did some further research after that, and it turns out that the video card that we had, that Diamond that diamond Multimedia Diamond Stove thing, um, not only was it not slow, contrary to what we thought, it was actually pretty, if not the fastest, then one of the, like, top three... 2D video cards that money could buy uh, at that point. Yeah. And with no idea. Like, we just told them, give us a good one. And they did. Uh, so once the, yeah, that was the, the shitty motherboard of Doom. As soon as it was replaced, my life got a whole lot better. <laughs> um, and I still remember it at this point. That's it's amazing. One of, the, one of a series of, like, mishaps with uh, crappy hardware that I had over the years. So was that just a badly manufactured individual motherboard or like did you just get a dud or were they all I don't know because nowadays like there wasn't really any like you had the internet back then I mean it was nowhere like it was uh, later in the 90s but you did have internet access if you could afford it back then but hardly anyone in Israel did like it was pretty much limited to academia and a couple companies that were just kind of budding early days ISPs so no one had internet access, and mm-hmm. consequently, probably even if we did, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to find the right forum to, to ask the right kind of questions. But uh, nowadays, actually, uh, during my research for this episode, try to find details on that uh, particular motherboard. And uh, I found very few, um, very few mentions of it. Like, I managed to find the manual and a few forum posts about it, but no one mentioned, uh, you know, no one mentioned that in any negative way. So either we had a bad specimen or it was a shitty motherboard and just no one ever bothered documenting it as soon as the web got, you know, meaningful because it was just outdated hardware, so why bother? Sure, yeah, it was old by then. 
So yeah, um, there's there's a whole bunch of stories like that throughout uh, throughout kind of my uh, uh, computer hardware career, I guess you could say. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, so if if you're looking for something, you know, kind of a teaser for uh, potential future episodes in this vein, then like I said, I could talk about sound cards for hours and also about different video cards and video modes and stuff like that. And then there's the story about um, we'll leave it for another time. The Death Star, <laughs> IBM Death Star debacle. You can probably Google it, but if not, then you know I'll probably tell it some other time. Oh, please do. Yeah, well, a lot of the topics that you mentioned are on my list as well, which we didn't have time to get to, but I'd love to have you back to talk about things like I have modems and video cards and sound cards on my list. Oh, yeah. I actually haven't even mentioned modems on this list. Yeah, I have, I have joysticks. I have, uh, like, electronic mice. handheld games. Oh, yeah, we have mice on there. So, well, mice, mice I'm not huge, um, hugely knowledgeable about. Like, I've had my, you know, run of generic two or three button mice with, uh, like, the rubber ball. Um, right. And one experience with, like, an early days optical mouse in the early 80s. Uh, from the early 80s, rather. That is early. Yeah, but then pretty much everything, you know, my, the, the the point where I started getting interested in mice uh, in, in any level of seriousness was around 98. Up until that point, it was just something that I had to have because you, you know, couldn't really not have a mouse after a certain point. But uh, yeah, most games that support, most of the early games that supported mouse controls, I never bothered with. So I still play like Doom or Duke 3D or Blood or, you know, early, or Quake. Basically, any early FPS I play with keyboard controls to this day. Oh, to this day, really? Yeah. I did for the longest time. I played, uh, I would play all those games with keyboard only until the day that I played against somebody over a modem uh, in Doom, and he played with a mouse. And I was annoyed at him, because I thought it was, I considered it to be cheating to be playing with the mouse. He could just turn so much faster than I could that I didn't even have a chance, but that convinced me that I guess I had better get on board with that. My prior experience with that was uh, playing Blood against uh, three other players on the LAN, and all three used mice. Mm. And either uh, they were really, really, really shitty, or I'm way better than I think, but I beat the crap out of them. Wow. So I don't know. It's it's just that the early first-person shooters were designed for keyboard controls and mice, like mouse controls were. I don't know that they were an afterthought, but they weren't, you know, any any fundamentally more first-class than the keyboard controls. So oh, you could sure. go either way, I guess. Well, my understanding is that John Romero was one of the first people to play those games with a mouse. So he he did tweak his own uh, levels to uh, accommodate and to reward you for doing it that way. And that's one way that he beat so many people as well. Was that no, he had been practicing with, with them? With, with Doom, I mean, you don't really have, you know, you can't look up or down anyway. So right. The, the, so the, the fundamental uh, advantage of a mouse that makes it way easier to, to aim uh, accurately is mostly lost. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like the you can, you can turn at any rate as fast as you can move your hand is how fast you can turn versus... With the keyboard, where you hold it down and you turn like what five degrees a second, or that's that's an understatement. But 
It's like the relative amount that you're moving per second versus the absolute distance that you want to turn. It's a lot more precise to use the mouse, even if it's only on that one axis. Actually, actually, if you know, uh, like, if you pay attention, you'll notice that the rate of uh, rotation, uh, especially in Doom, even with the keyboard, is not linear. Like, you're, you really? accelerate your rotation as you uh, as you press the button. It's subtle, but uh, I mean, if you like, there is absolutely no way to turn any meaningful amount of degrees in a reasonable amount of time if you don't have that. Yeah, you know, I could be wrong, but that's you know, unless my memory is playing tricks on me, it's definitely not linear. Uh, you, you, you know, that that's what allows you to do both kind of uh, subtle um, subtle rotations, subtle changes in your uh, in your aim, mm -hmm. or just you know, turn around and still make a meaningful shot of something. Oh, that's really something. I like I said, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the way it behaved. Oh, no doubt you're right. Neat. Cool. All right. Well, why don't we leave it at that for now? We've got a pretty good duration on our show here, and I'd absolutely love to have you back to uh, continue the discussion if uh, you're not fed yeah. up with us yet. Happily. Um, no, I'm, I'm hardly ever fed up. <laughs> like, if I've, if I've listened to, what is it, up until now, probably like 25 three-hour episodes. Yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to get sick. going to together. probably be part of a three-hour episode or Yeah, two. that's right. <laughs> Well, you're my kind of person, then, if you can put up with all of that stuff. So, thank uh, yeah, I'm, I'm either lucky or unlucky enough to have pretty long commutes, uh, either to work or, like, to family. So, mm. yeah, I mean, if I'm alone in the car, I listen to either, you know, podcasts or, uh, like, you know, professional talks and that sort of thing. Oh, I'm the same way. Well, honored to be one of those shows and honored to have you on uh, on this show. So, thank you so much for coming along. Great to have you. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm, you know, I'm I'm honored to be here. It's uh, it's a great show. I love it. Um, I've been laughing my ass off for for quite a few episodes, but in a good way. In case uh, that wasn't applied, I hope so. And <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to be back. And thank you very much for having me. It's, oh, fantastic! It's and, and Bianca, sorry for you know. I don't know whether this bored you or just you just. Didn't well, have I had a few things I wanted to say, but um, I wasn't going to say anything about the. Uh, you taking the ball and uh, running halfway <laughs> around the world with it while I sat here bewildered. In general, we like to let the uh, the, the guest take the spotlight, if necessary. She's a, I, I will put on the record that she is an experienced system builder herself. And between the two of us, she's the only one who's built a, a system on the first try and have it boot up without problems. I've only, my record is... Zero one, and standing. Yeah, well, my record is one, uh, one failed attempt, and then I did an adjustment, and then it booted. It's still zero because it's not the first one. Yes, spot. yes, you win. Blah, blah, blah. Of course I, can, I, win. I, can probably, I can probably count the times where I put a computer together and it actually booted, you know, without blowing up or, or failing to boot, in, you know, on the first attempt on one hand across 20 years of, of doing that. So yep, yep. Post. So many factors. So, Tamara, is there anything that you'd like to uh, plug, or do you want to give people information on how they can get a hold of you? Uh, well, good. you know, if for whatever reason you want to get a hold of me, that's pretty easy. Um, I'm uh, Tomer G on Twitter. It's T-O-M-E-R-G on Twitter. Uh, or just, uh, you know, Google my name. It's, it's not internet unique anymore, thanks to a, a remote relative 
who was born about 15 years ago with the same name, Damien mm-hmm. Duhek. Because now if you search for my name, you actually find two different people. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything I wish to plug? Um, I thought you already plugged uh, something at the beginning of that the That wasn't show. his. That was his friend's thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just, uh, it still well, counts as plugging. No, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, First off, Mind Candy, uh, which we've discussed, if you're at all interested in the demo scene, make sure you go and buy the Blu-ray because it's astounding. Um, yeah, get the Blu-ray and not the DVD. Well, the, the, the Amiga one is only on DVD and it's really, really good. Uh, uh, I was talking about like the, the newish one, the, the PC demos from like up until about 2010 or 11, I think. Oh, yeah, There's okay. some really fantastic demos there. And, uh, the quality will will blow you away. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that. Um, we can, I'll, I'll send you a link if I remember uh, to put in the show notes. Sure. Uh, sister podcast. The way the way I perceive this uh, sort of scene is that you know pretty much I, I pretty much lump uh, uh, Square Waves, UMB Show, uh, Dust Nostalgic, Blue Cup Tools, uh, Backseat Designers. Like they're all sort of in the same group of podcasts yeah we're uh, all pretty narrow-minded buddies all of us so that's yeah. that's our thing so, so yeah so if there's anything i would plug it's probably all those and uh, one final plug is that if anyone's interested in uh recordings of the uh, music from the amiga version of defender of the crown uh then it's available on my website that's pretty much the only relevant thing i can imagine uh, that i would plug Oh, that's great. Well, please send me the link to that, and I'll stick it right on the notes. Oh, yeah, that's easy enough. Um, and, yeah, that's it. I mean, once again, thanks for having me. I've had an absolute blast, and uh, I hope, uh, you know, I hope uh, your, the rest of your weekend uh, is terrific. Well, thank this you. Is, you too. This is actually no longer the Israeli weekend because uh, we're weird, so Sunday is work day here. Ah. Sunday is like the Israeli Monday. Interesting. Right, yeah. because of uh, the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, uh, the calendar is backwards there. <laughs> well, backwards is one way of putting it. Uh, completely full bar is another. Um, <laughs> yeah, so thanks for having me, and, uh, you know, looking forward to, uh, to your next shows. Oh, well, that's great. Well, thanks a bunch. And uh, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we'd love to hear from you about any of your favorite hardware or if you have any stories, of course, about your earliest computers or your uh, the things you've enjoyed or your mishaps. You can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com, by email, squarefm at demodulated.com, and we're on Twitter at squarewavesfm. So thank you once again for joining us, and uh, we'll sign off here. Always a pleasure. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Adieu.